Blog Talk Radio. in between. Live from Los Angeles, California, welcome to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show with your host, Shaw McCain. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, Shaw McCain. I'd like to welcome listeners to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show. My show was created to provide an open-minded platform that welcomes the gifted and extraordinary thinkers from every walk of life and circumstance. Please follow us on Facebook, the Paranormal and Sacred, for any upcoming events and special speakers from around the world. And we are translated into many different languages, so we have many listeners from outside of our country also. And the call-in number tonight is 619-924-9744, and the Paranormal and the Sacred airs every Friday night, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And during this show, we I will take questions in order in chat. You may also call in with your questions and also speak with our guests. And any buzz killers are reminded in chat or even on the phone will be kicked out I have a copy of the information, so I'll call you back and I'll be bugging you. So don't bug me. Just play nice, okay? Anyway, I have a few announcements to make. Uh, uh, August 24th, zero, the Stural Support Group is meeting at the Burbank location. For those in the know, know where it is. And uh, then on September 20th, Stural International uh, has an event featuring a researcher, Grant Cameron. He's been our guest before, and we're so excited about meeting him in person. So it's only going to be $15 at the door, and uh, it's going to be at the Culver City address. And you can go to www.cerointernational.com for uh, the locales and the information and everything else. And uh, October 26th, uh, we'll be having me back on Burbank. And there, we're actually having a screening in November of Top Priority, followed by a panel with the producers of Top Priority, B.J. Davis, Julia Davis, Angeletto, Bertolotti, and uh, that's Brittany Murphy's father, and they're going to have a question and answer, so that's coming up in November. And uh, and we're also getting ready for, uh, believe it or not, all ready for Christmas, the serial annual holiday party aboard the Queen Mary. I'm telling you, it's a lot of fun. And it's between $35 and $45 for a beautiful dinner and views of the water on the Queen Mary. And uh, we go every year, me and my uh, my best friend and her husband, we go every year. And uh, I'm cordially inviting you to go. So it does co- it'll cost a little bit, but it's well worth it. And next week, our illustrious guest is going to be Linda Godfrey. She's going to be discussing her new book, American Monsters. And we love to have Linda talking about her cryptozoology and everything else. And she's written so many books, I can't even tell you. I think there's over 13 or 14 at this point. Anyway, uh, I'd like to introduce our co-host, Adrian Rudnick. Let me get him aboard. Adrian, you're live with the Paranormal and Sacred. Yes, good evening, sir. How are you doing? We're doing very, very well. It's another beautiful night in Los Angeles. Yes, and it's going to be a, an exciting show, isn't it? Tell us something yes, about yes. Um, the guest in our case, if you wish. 
Okay, so um, he's he's actually with us and getting ready to come on live. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit of introduction. Uh, Jim Penniston, um, in 1980, he was a U.S. Air Force Staff Sergeant and was stationed at the 81st Security Police Squadron at the large joint uh, British and U.S. US Air Force Base known as RAS, the Royal Air Force. Bentwaters and its smaller secondary base at Woodbridge, about three miles away, where some aircraft were kept. Not long after midnight, December 26th, Sergeant Tennyson was asked to investigate some odd lights seen moving in the Rendlesham Forest between Bentwaters and Woodbridge. Joining him was staff uh, Ironman First Class, John Burroughs, and several other security and military personnel. So this was all uh, very well witnessed and uh, very well documented. And as the security men approached, the odd lights about 300 meters off the access road in the trees, and then could see blue, yellow, red, and white colors that were pulsing. So this is what is called is the Rendlesham incident, and it's like uh, United Kingdom's Roswell, let's say that. I think it's an exciting case, don't you? It's one of the most important cases in ufology. It's, yes, it's so important. There's, there's been a lot written about it, and uh, we're going to just get Jim on right now. Welcome, Jim. You're live on the Paranormal and the Sacred. Hello, Char. Thanks a lot for coming on tonight. I appreciate it. Um, I just am so impressed with uh, your credentials and how you stood up under all the pressure all these years, and uh, uh, you're quite an amazing person, and uh, I just want to welcome you on the show, and we can't wait to hear your story. Thanks. Uh, yeah, we've been friends a long time on Facebook, haven't we, Char? Yeah, we have. Quite, so yeah. Now we know uh, <laughs> why. Because uh, I'm I'm kind of like a slow person. I I don't put everything together. So I'm friends with people. We <laughs> hang out and everything else. I don't know who the heck anybody is. What they're attached to. I just know I love them. You know. But it's uh. Anyways, when I found out this is who you really were, I just was bowled over, and uh, it's really incredible. Do you want to give a little bit of your background before you go into the story? Uh. You want to, should I tell a little bit about the the incident, the, the accident, without going into the story of the bases and that, or or you think everybody well, has uh, a good understanding? I don't know if they know about you personally either. So well, uh, uh, where are you from, and you know, if you could tell us a little hi, bit. There, there, may, there may be sure, some people that. Um, that don't know. So yeah, a good overview. Hi, hi, Jim. This is Adrian. I'm the cover. Pleasure to meet you, sir. And so yeah, a good, oh. good overview would be great. I think. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well. Uh, I am from the Midwest, uh, actually from Wisconsin, and uh, I uh, went in the Air Force in 1973, uh, and I put 20 years there, and then I got out and worked for local government, and uh, now I'm retired. Um, there's not a lot to say. I have, uh, you know, I have three children. They're all grown women, <laughs> so, but... Uh, yeah, that's that's probably it. I you know, but see, I'll tell you what. If it sounds like I don't want to talk about myself, I really don't want to talk about myself because the yeah. Rendlesham Forest incident isn't about me. Right. It's about what happened out there. And right. That's, that's what where, I was um, implying. Is um, there? I know that I have some friends that are pretty much newbies, but are curious about UFOs. And so, could you give an overview before we get into the details of? What makes this case so special? 
Well, I think the 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 reason is special because it's the most documented. Um, we had uh, over uh, 80 uh, witnesses that night that were working, uh, um, and uh, all of us were there for a real mission. I mean, a real job. I mean, that wasn't to go out and look for UFOs. It was to protect the security interests of uh, of the twin bases and, and the United States Air Force. So and this was located in England, lo- correct? Yeah. Yes, it's located about 60 miles north uh, east of uh, London. It's the twin bases. the The main operating base is RAF Bellwaters, and the uh, and three miles away was RAF Woodbridge. But that had mainly like housing on it, and it did have a few squadrons of uh, A10s on there and some operational resources. But the main resources were on Bellwaters, and in between those two bases, about three miles, that was Rendlesham Forest. It also extended out to Cape Green area, which headed toward the coast, which was about five miles away. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so. Go ahead, Char. Okay, so uh, it is the best documented uh, and compelling um, uh, story that uh, multiple witness military, uh, high-ranking military. Uh, and I, I understand that you actually even got radar data and documentation to back up uh, the things you saw firsthand. Yes, uh, as far as evidence, this this incident has evidence. I mean, it has physical evidence. It's got uh, uh, it was triangulated with uh, three types of radar: one from uh, London radar, Eastern radar, which was a local uh, military, and um, and of course Bentwaters radar. And so it was. It was actually triangulated. And one of the things over there at the time, and I, I'm not sure if your other military people uh, understand what the status of forces agreements are for their, for a host nation country or not, but we had them in England. That means we had a set of rules because we were guests, even though we rented the base and we leased it for 99 years. We still had to abide by some government uh, um, courtesy with the British. And uh, one of the things is we couldn't respond off base unless an emergency uh, emergency condition existed. That means maybe a, a, you know an airplane crash, a, uh, a life and death situation, maybe maybe automobile crash with uh, you know maybe a military vehicle, something like that. And uh, so when we lost contact, and this this is part of the, this is part of my account. Uh, and I might as well just go right into it, Char, because yeah, it is, yeah, it's part of it. So after I got dispatched from uh, Central Security Control on Woodbridge that night, it was about two, three in the morning, and uh, on December 26, 1980, and uh, I uh, was told to go ahead and uh, meet up with uh, Police Four and Police Five, two uh, law enforcement units, uh, and the senior person there was Sergeant Stephens. And I did meet at the East Gate with him, and uh, he, he, I said, what was going on? And he says, well, he pointed over to the uh, woods, uh, the forest area there. And uh, it was about 150 yards of clearing and then the forest. And I could see uh, what looked like multiple color lights within the forest. And said, these are pretty thick forests. I mean, they're only about five, six feet in between with each tree. I mean, they're pretty thick. And um, anyway, over the top of the forest, there was a dome of white light. So there was something bright enough out there causing that, that much light to be over the 
uh, over the canopy of the forest. And I said to uh, Sergeant Steffens, I says, uh, "Wow." I said, uh, "Did you hear?" I said, uh, "Did you see a crash?" And he goes, "Oh no." He says, "That didn't crash." He says, "That landed." And I says, "What?" It made no sense. So I go to the direct line at the uh, at the East Gate uh, entry control point, and when I pick that up, I have five people on the on the line immediately. I have you know the central security control, which is the security controller. Uh, I have uh, the shift commander. I have the flight sergeant for both bases. I have the uh, communication plotter. I mean, there's a lot of people on that line when I pick it up. So things are going to be happening really, really fast. I mean, they happen like in a matter of seconds to minutes. So as soon as I pick that up, I tell them that um, I'm not sure, but I said it appears to be something on fire in in the forest. I said, I says, uh, is there anything that could have caused that? And uh, and I and then I was talking to Sergeant uh, Chandler, who was the flight sergeant. And in the middle of that, Sergeant Coffey, the senior controller, um, he uh, says uh, that be advised that we uh, London radar and Eastern radar lost contact with a bogey on the identified aircraft about <clears throat> about 15 minutes ago. Excuse me, one second. Dog gone. It has to take some water. Um, okay. About fifteen. Yeah. About fifteen sec. Or fifteen minutes ago. So right there, by losing uh, radar contact over the Woodbridge area base, and what I identified out there as a possible fire crash scene out in the, in the forest, it was it was uh, at that point the shift commander determined that it was a downed aircraft. He says a possible downed aircraft, an emergency situation existed. So under the status of forces agreement, uh, that would allow us to go off base and respond to it. Uh, the shift commander went to the wing command post, uh, and they in turn went to the base commander, and we got permission to deploy off base. I assembled a small team, a law enforcement airman, uh, who was John Burroughs, and also a security airman who was uh, Ed Kabanzak. And uh, we uh, deployed with vehicle, you know, maybe another 100 yards, um, and I drove as far as I could. Um, and then these, these, these forces are regularly cut, okay, so that they actually harvest the, harvest the forest. So there was berms, earthen berms that were about five feet high, even though it was cut. So I went as far as I could with the vehicle. I was afraid I was going to, like, tip it over. And um, at that time, we started to have radio difficulties, which was un- unusual because we had repeaters all over the base. Um, so uh, uh, that was different. And then we went on foot from the vehicle, and as we headed toward the tree line, uh, it, it, it was a... Uh, became more intense the color in that and um, also the radio issues started to become more difficult so I took the one airman, the security airman and uh, used him as a relay uh, with uh, who by that time Sergeant Chandler the flight chief had gotten to the East East Gate area and he was relaying information to him and of course Sergeant Chandler was relaying information at control centers now, this is all happening in about, 
two minutes, okay, maybe a minute and a half from the time I picked that phone up. That's how fast this is going. Uh, it's because we had uh, uh, over 10,000 people working at those swim bases. We had six squadrons of aircraft. We had uh, high-value uh, resources there. So it was a serious situation security-wise to get out there as fast as we could. One is to render any possible, uh, uh, you know, help to, uh, you know, a downed pilot or something like that. But more importantly, to set up an intercontrol point and uh, and secure the air, the area around where the crash scene would be. And um, that would allow, you know, for emergency response vehicles to come through the intercontrol point that we establish out there, like the fire department and EOD and everybody else that would be out there. But as we approached, uh, myself and the other airmen, as we approached the tree line, uh, there was a, a, just a very, very bright uh, light uh, that was somewhere in, inside the forest, maybe 20 feet, 30 feet, I couldn't really tell. And I was seeing less and less light, or less and less color in the light. And um, as I got up into the, the, the forest area, we were starting to feel really weird uh, sensations, like um, like electricity on you know like static electricity on your hands and clothes and your hair, and uh, uh, then the other thing as I entered toward this 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 light that was fairly dim but I couldn't discern it. And um, now, how many people could, were approaching uh, the craft this month? It was you and John Burroughs and other people, or me and the security airman? Yes. Okay. And uh, yeah, the, uh, John Burroughs, but security airman, that's who we are, the uh, law enforcement airman. The security airman was back uh, doing the radio relay a little bit, not far, maybe 50 feet, I don't know, something like that. Um, anyway, as we as I approached, there was a explosion of light, okay? It was a very bright uh, white light, um, maybe somewhat so bright it was somewhat bluish, there was no sound, but I hit the ground, and uh, I think I did that naturally uh, you know, as a reaction. Uh, but there, when I heard no explosion with it, uh, no sound to go with it, uh, and I see the light dissipate again as I stood up, the light kept dissipating more and more and more. Actually, where I could actually see uh, a development of a of a, a structured craft uh, on the other, uh, maybe 10, 15 feet in front of me. And uh, as I approached that, it, it was triangular in nature. And then I couldn't, uh, in the area, another uh, physical thing that was going on is, like, you couldn't hear uh, the wind in the trees. There, You couldn't hear the farm animal, animals over in the far, uh, in the barnyards that were across the way. Um, there was a complete dead uh, silence. There was no sound at all. It was like it was uh, um, it was muffled everything, and I looked to my right, and the the law enforcement airman, uh, he uh, was standing there, uh, I don't know, uh, immobilized. I mean, he was, I don't know if he was scared to death or or what, but he wasn't moving. But it didn't look natural. And uh, anyway, I I I stopped being distracted with that because I just wrote him off as a casualty. And then 
I concentrated what was in front of me, in front of me, and that was the triangular black craft, and the light had dissipated all the way down. We didn't, I, you know, we didn't need no flashlights or nothing like that out there. And uh, so, in front of me was a triangular craft, uh, and I, I, I kept trying to transmit it on my radio. Of course, uh, with the hope of uh, not receiving nothing, but with the hope of they can hear me by me transmit, transmitting. How large was this craft? Was there a little? Well, it wasn't very big. Uh, so what I determined, what I thought I was going to do is, I'm not sure if I was going to survive this situation because uh, it, it it was no longer aircraft crash. This was a security situation, and so I did call a helping hand situation in, which is a security situation, a possible hostile event. Uh, but whether uh, whether they heard it or not, I don't know. Um, no, 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 that's not true. Sergeant Coffey, uh, later, years later, the senior controller told me that they did hear the part about the uh, helping hand be initiated, and they and they took action over that. Um, anyway, then I figured, well, I I might as well do as much as I can. So I took a, I had my camera because I thought it was going to be a um, aircraft crash. So I snapped every picture I had. Um, they come in. We had, at those times we had film and we had like 36 rolls in them. Um, so I, ex- I expended that. Uh, I was going to try to write down as much information as I, as I could. So I uh, took out my notebook. And I didn't have nothing to measure out there, so I I paced off the craft, and you know uh, my my pace is about uh, three feet, and so it was about nine feet long, and nine feet on the other side, so it was completely nine feet on each side. Uh, it stood about maybe six and a half, seven feet tall. I based that because I'm six foot two. Uh, it was uneven ground, so I'm not really sure about the height. So it's somewhere in between there. Was it hovering or was it on tripods? Well, or? well it, yeah, it was. It, it seemed landed. So you know, uh, one of the things I did do is I looked underneath, and there was still light, white light coming out from the uh, below it. And uh, I said, "Well, I wonder how this thing is uh, standing there. I don't know how it's doing it. All I see is light. I see no landing gear." So I push it, I take it, and I push on both sides of this uh, on this craft, and it doesn't move. I mean, this thing's solid. So I said, okay. I says, well, it has a technology. I'm not sure. And I, and I really was concerned because that kind of technology we don't have. I knew that. I mean, there's a possibility we could have had a triangular craft at the time. I mean, but not uh, a technology where you can have an object uh, sitting uh Two, two feet over uh, off the ground. So you intuitively knew it wasn't the Soviets or anything like that? Cause it was well, you know what? Uh, you know, I, I had a top-secret clearance. I I had worked uh, in uh, SAC headquarters. I had worked around uh, uh, research and development stuff. I mean, I, I knew what that stuff looked like, but this this stuff wasn't what uh, anything I had seen. And, you know, I'm looking for the things, the obvious things that an airplane would have. An airplane has flaps. An airplane has crew compartments at the time. They have intakes. They have exhaust. This craft was void of all those things. So as I'm doing my 360 walk around on here, uh, I come back around on the, the other side of it, and I could see up toward the front of it 
would appear to be the front from my position, and I uh, seen what I thought was uh, writing. So at that point in time, I was actually somewhat relieved because I thought it would say, you know, Nassau, U.S. Air Force, <laughs> something, you know, uh, familiar yeah. like that. Even a sickle that would have been good on there. Um, <laughs> and when I, uh, yes, I know I was hoping it was anything, you know, like Russian or anything. Um, and then as I walk up to it, and I'm feeling the side of the craft, the craft is like, it's it's completely opaque. I mean, it, when I walked up to it, it did have color running through it, but that sort of dissipated. Um, and I was running my hand across it, and, and it was it was completely smooth. Uh, I knew it was metal, but it was so smooth it was like black glass. I mean, it was very smooth. And when I got to the, uh, these, these glyphs, um, and that's what the writing was. It was it was like uh, uh, pictorials. Uh, they stretched about, there's like six of them or so, and uh, they stretched about three feet, and they were about five inches high because my hand's that wide. And above them was a circle and a triangle within it with two round circles. And anyway, as I ran my hand across from the smooth to the bliss, it was going like going from glass to sandpaper. So these mm-hmm. things were somehow maybe etched into it. Um, and uh, it was pretty safe uh, at that point for me. But then, you know, uh, you know, it's not doing nothing, so I, I felt a little bit more confident, even though it was, uh, it was unknown. Um, and so I touched, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the triangle part of it, the largest symbol. And when I did that, I was completely blind. I had nothing but white, bright light touching that. And, uh, I mean, I was totally, I was pretty scared um, at that point. And even though I had my hand on that, I sort of, I don't know how long it was. I don't know if it was 10 seconds. I don't know, 15. I really don't know. It wasn't long. Uh, I sort of gained my, my senses back. And all I did was just take my hand off and, it was uh, completely, uh, the light had gone. And, you know, the craft's still there. And what was really odd is normally when you have, like, bright light like that, it would take, oh, I don't know, half an hour out in a dark uh, forest for your eyes to even start trying to adjust back to, you know, uh, any kind of normal. They're blinded. (laughs) Yeah, I tell you what, and, and... and when once that light, I took my hand off, and that light dissipated. I could still, I could see the craft, and then you know the trees that were you know around us. I mean, it, there was no adjustment at all from it, so it was a very strange uh, situation. Did you feel so, heat, the light, or anything like that, or any magnetic? I, I I didn't catch that. What was that? Did you feel any heat from the light, or did the light give, give off any sort of other kind of qualities, or is it just? Benign, just bright. No, it, it was. Yeah, you know, there was no no effect from the light except uh, where I couldn't see. I mean, uh, there was no heat, nothing like that. But uh, you know, the craft was warm to touch. I mean, the, I mean, the air temperature out there that night was around 32 degrees, and um, I would say that the skin of the craft, the fabric of the craft, was probably running. I'm guessing at this at 
45, 50 degrees, maybe 60. I don't know. It's pretty warm. Uh, but with the light in that, there was nothing, no sensation. But the light was identical to the light that when I first walked up to the craft with the explosion of light. Uh, because it was so bright, there's still this, uh, uh, I don't know, it's a bluish tint to it or whatever it is. And uh, But but it, in a way, it couldn't be light because how can your eyes readjust that fast? I mean, that's impossible too. Um, you can see that while I was out there, I had nothing but questions. I mean, this is happening, but how can that happen? You know, that's what I'm doing. Uh, it, it, and there was no you know, sound, and it's a little warm. Yeah, no sound. No, that whole area around the craft was uh, just just dead of sound. I mean, and 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 just to walk around the craft, it's, it was labored. I mean, the move, it was it was like um, you were drudging through thick air or something like that. It was different. Um, Anyway, I made another 360 around it, but I didn't touch the craft after that episode with the, with the, the triangle, you know, symbol. I didn't touch it again. Uh, I knew better than that. I mean, one time was enough. And um, so I went and did the 360 again. I and during all this time, you know, I'm taking notes. I'm uh, I'm still doing occasional security check. I think the deaf ears on the radio, so uh, I'm coming back around again toward it, and I see the light starting to generate again, so I am apprehensive of the light, so I back away from it 10 feet or so, and what it does is it it lifts off the ground there, higher, and it sort of moves back through the trees. Now, I know this thing is at least 9 feet. I know these trees are like 5 feet apart, and so I can't figure out how those trees, how it can go back to those trees. That's impossible. Um, and so it does that for a little bit, not very far. Then it raises up to the canopy of the forest. It's sort of momentary stands or is stationary, and then it slightly turns, and within a blink of an eye, it's gone. Now, as it generated off the forest floor, and as it went up to the canopy, this thing had no air displacement at all. It had no sound. And then when it took off above the canopy, there was no sonic boom. So these are all things that aircraft and stuff that we have do. They have, you know, sound. They have air displacement. They have noise, you know, uh, engine noise. Uh, um, it, it, it was actually, I was just, you know, perplexed over it. It didn't have any horizontal or vertical um, stabilizers or anything of that sort, too, correct? No, no. I mean, this thing's a flying brick. I mean, this is a triangle, but it could fly. I mean, it had a dorsal on it and that, but, you know, this thing wouldn't fly. You need flaps to fly. I mean, come on. Yeah. Jim, can I ask you, did you see anything or how it was put together, like any rivets, or was it just totally smooth? Or there was any windows, or did you have a sense that there was occupants? No. It was completely uh, smooth. Um, yes. There was no crew compartments. There was no windows. There was no doors. There was no rivets. I mean, uh, this is um, this is a, a nice piece of work. I mean, uh, I don't know how it. I don't know how it could be uh, uh, made. I mean, I don't know. I, I doubt a week could make anything like that. 
If we could make anything like it, it sure wouldn't fly. Yeah, it just sounds exquisite, and I did see something like that. Not as beautiful as what you're saying. Mine was gray, uh, looked, but it was flying, but no sound, no windows, no nothing, just nothing. About the size of a Volkswagen coming towards me sideways. That's what I was saying. But, it's phenomenal. Well, you know so what? You guys, uh, and you had the courage that, to touch it. I can't even believe that. Amazing. Well, I was, I was invest. I was doing my job. Yeah. My, I had to investigate. There was, there was a possible security threat. I mean, I, you know, even though that you know we're expendable. I mean, you got to take. I figured I could write down as much information as I could, take as many photographs. And then, you know, whether or whatever happens to me, it didn't matter. I mean, at least the, the 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 command element at the base would be able to have information without me uh, to uh, make, you know, decisions and stuff. And that's that's what you do. What was the time or the duration of length of how long you studied the craft, if you had to guess? I don't have to hour. guess. Well, I'm pretty sure I don't have to guess. Uh, I'll tell you why, because uh, continue a little bit. Right okay. after the, 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 the craft took off the blink of eye, John, the other airman, is there. I hear a, a couple of twigs break behind me, and he goes, points over to it, and he, he reacquires it. He says, it's over there, and he takes off, so I go after him. Uh, because... Uh, if it lands again, he whatever he does, he can't. He better not touch that thing. You know what I mean? And I didn't want him to do that. And so we chased it, and we could never quite get up to it. And then when we got up to it, sort of close, it, we could never. It kept going farther away, and finally it just left. And uh, your question about what now about the what was that question? How long did you? How long did you? Well, the reason uh, I think we know the exact time it was on the ground is uh, later when John and I uh, got back to the um, uh, control center, the CSC, um, both of our watches were 45 minutes off. Wow. Ours were exactly the same, but they were 45 minutes off from the real time. And the real time was a few hours off, or...? Well, I don't know. I imagine at six o'clock in the morning, they were forty-five minutes off. I don't. Wow. Yeah. So you, you uh, studied the craft for a good length of time. Then it wasn't, you know, just a couple. Yeah, of I minutes. didn't think it was going to go anywhere. I thought I had uh, after, you know, after the first ten, fifteen minutes, I thought I had a all night, and uh, and I was wondering why the response forces didn't come out there, and they weren't there yet. That's one of my concerns because that was the protocol. One of the security protocols is to have them back me up and it just wasn't happening. I gotta commend you on keeping uh you kept a cool head there. I mean something so unusual and um the even in that sort of excitement you you were still able to keep a cool head and analyze and, and do what you needed to do. And well, you drew the if I understand it, um the pictographs that you saw. Yes, I, I, I drew as much detail and took as much notes as I could. Um uh, I guess the most disappointing part is uh, you know, I, we find out later, I mean, through other uh, investigation out there with other teams and that, uh, you know, the, the heat on the warmth on the uh, craft is due to radiation. Uh, so, you know, that affected all the photographs. They were 
you know, the base photo lab, they, they're all whited out. I thought it was suspicious at, when I went in there to the base photo lab to get them, and they were all whited out. But the craft did come back on the third night, and that's when Colonel Hump, the base commander, deputy base commander, went out there to debunk it. And um, he also took a disaster preparedness guy with him, and, of course, he had a you know Geiger counter and he had cameras. But the thing is, Sergeant Nevels, the disaster preparedness NCO, he, uh, one of his hobbies was to his photography and development his own film in it. And so he took pictures out there, too, of the landing site. And, um, of course, he went home and, and did them uh, at his house to develop them. And none of his turned out either. They're all lighted out. So it had to be because of the radiation. It wasn't because there was some kind of conspiracy or something like that going on, you know. Well, that's that, good. And, you know, I'm thinking well, about something. Well, at that point, You're missing yeah. 45 minutes, so uh, this whole thing took place. Nobody else came. And do you feel like uh, the environment had changed, and that's why it's so silent, that maybe you were operating within some kind of a bubble? That's a good term. I, I, I don't know what I'm saying. I, yeah, you do, because okay, do. that's the term I use inside the book is a bubble. And it was a bubble effect within there, like around 10 feet around the craft. It seemed like, and wow. I did uh, allude to it earlier, it just seemed like different. I mean, you got the static electricity. You have the labor movement. Uh, time seems slower, you know, labor movements and uh, and. Um, uh, the absence of you know the sound it was it was it was different, and you know that's another thing is that is that that ten feet around around the craft or so that area was still light enough so I could do everything I was doing you know I could see quite well but then you could see behind me like where the where the sphere of influence of this bubble would end. It was like uh, like a glass, like not like glass. It was like a um, lighting, you know. It was like a light, lighting, lighted shell, like around there. And that's not really a very accurate, but it's close as I can get. A lighted mm-hmm. shell that would be around that area. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, the the area was completely uh, there. Was, there was some kind of effect being caused around that. Uh, craft itself. So it stayed for three days. It came coming back. So how many witnesses would you say actually saw this? Well, it landed and took off on the first night. And then yeah. they had uh, observation on the third night. And that's where Colonel Hall uh, had beams of light that were shooting down and things like that. I mean, there were, there were multiple craft in the air. And uh, I would say total, uh, and I'm talking about the people that were uh, right there within the media area that were on, be able to observe it from the adjacent restricted areas, and then, of course, the people at Bentwater could see it too. So I would say there's probably about 250 um, people would be a good guess. Um, Now, how many reports were filed? Like, what, like how many how many people reported? Would you say? What do you mean reported? Made a report because you made you made a report, right? Yes, we were debriefed. Yes. 
Okay, debris. Okay. So I don't know how many are debris. Yeah. I don't admit know. It or... Go ahead. Pardon me? Did everybody admit it, or, or did they try to What do you mean, admit it? it? I mean, no, they observed it. <laughs> wow. I mean, there's nothing to admit. I mean, this, this is, this is, you know. Like, uh, there's no cover-up is what I'm saying. I think we're just no, getting not initially the, the, there the wasn't. Actively, I hear you. I see you're kind of talk about it. No. The reported to the CEOs or whatever, did, was it, did, or was every, everything like, okay, we're not going to talk about it, like a hush-hush situation? Well, what happened was initially, no, it was not a problem. I mean, we went back, we reported, we told our chef commander, and he wanted a debrief on that. And it was, it, it, we, and, you know, when I, uh, when I got to the East Gate coming back out of the forest, there were other, other members of uh, uh, the security forces that are still there. And, uh, you know, we rode back in the uh, vehicle together. It was like a metro big van. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, there was chatter, yeah. I mean, you know, one guy was saying to me, oh, man, he says, well, we see him take off, too. And I went, oh, really? I couldn't see that. I said, you know, there was that kind of chatter, but it was pretty quiet. And, uh, you know, just like when I got to Bentwaters, I, I ran into some of the other security flight guys, um, like uh, Sergeant Hall, and uh, he was, uh, and Aaron Berlino, he was, they were um, on a security response team on Bentwaters, and they sat out there in the runway, and they watched this. See, this is something I didn't see, but they watched it land, and then they watched it take off, you know, later on. So there was a lot of observational uh, uh, from different vantage points, uh, you know, and uh, that's what everybody was paid to do is observe and watch and do what they As far as the briefings, uh, I wouldn't be privy to everybody that got the brief. I mean, that wouldn't be, that was above my pay grade, I mean. But three days later, after the other incident, uh, Colonel Hall, uh, well, let me go back. Three days uh, after that, I, I go. I get a call. I have to go down to the West Side building. They go down to the West Side building. They want me to do a report. They have active uh, investigation on it, which is fine. I expected that. And um, so I wrote my report out, four pages or so. And um, I'm waiting for them to type it. That's what we're going to do. And um, they come back in about 20 minutes later. And they, I mean, I wrote four legal size pages out. <laughs> and I didn't leave any of wow. them. I was, I, I was pretty scared. I thought they were going to do something. So I told them everything. And. Uh, this is with the they OSI. Bring, they come back and they got like a quarter of a page, maybe a half page typed out. And I look at them going, that, that ain't enough. That, <laughs> they read it and it's sanitized. It says there's a craft that was 50 yards away. It was mechanical in nature. We never got close to it. Blah, blah, blah. And they said, this is an ongoing investigation. And this is the story you tell anybody to ask. I said, like in my chain of command, because I knew I was going to go to the base commander's office afterwards, and he says, anybody from this point on, because it's an active investigation, this is what you're going to tell them. Okay, no problem. I read it two or three times. Um, I meet up with uh, uh, the uh, other airman that was out there with me and at the base commander's office. We go in there, we write statements. We're both sitting on opposite ends of a table. I write the statement that they 
uh, OSI tells me. Um, so there's the cover-up started. Yeah. And then the base commander says, anything from this point on time, from this point of time on, is now to be treated as top secret. So once that happened, there was no talking about it. So if there was any scuttlebutt that was going, and there's plenty of that going on in the base, it was some people that didn't know or people that were not involved. So if anybody was talking about this on that base, they were not involved, okay, because they were not direct witnesses. Because those direct witnesses were under orders. Now, now you and uh, so this brings us up to the the witness all this, and then your your career went on, and uh, at some point you had decided to go into hypnosis to find out more information. Well, I was active duty until 1993, and yeah. um, when I uh, got out about a year later, um, uh, Colonel Hawk gets a hold of me. Um, and he says they want to do a documentary, and he wanted to put a lot of this disinformation that was going out. I guess it was a book out of time and stuff. It was you know, a lot of fabricated information. And um, he says we got a chance to do this documentary in England. Let's go over and do it. And so myself, John Burroughs, and Colonel Hall went over there and did this documentary. Uh, shot it, got back, and... Uh, I was I was just having trouble sleeping. I mean, I got to the point I was only sleeping maybe two, two and a half hours a night. So I went to my doctor. Uh, and I said, geez, I'm just having a lot of time, uh, trouble sleeping. And uh, so uh, she tried a few things, and they didn't work. Uh, and I don't know if the, when you're sleep-deprived, it, it's pretty bad. I mean, it gets really bad, especially after a couple of weeks, three to four weeks. And... Uh, Anyway, she says, well, here's what I think it is. I think you have some kind of trauma, and uh, I'm going to refer you to uh, a psychiatrist. Maybe the psychiatrist can help you with this sleep disorder. And that's what I went in for. I went in for, to, uh, with the psychiatrist for uh, a sleep disorder. And uh, one of their uh, things that she wanted to do, because I'll tell you what they thought. They thought, like, she was thinking, and she had told me this uh, after the fact, but maybe there was some kind of trauma as a child or something like that, you know. And uh, she says, we'll try the, try the hypnosis for that. So this has nothing to do with UFOs or anything with like that. This has to do right. with, with a medical situation. It has to do with sleep disorder. It has to do with doctors that have no other motive or any thought about anything except medical. That's all it has to do with. So it's clean and pure. So... Uh, and then I go in there, and, of course, uh, she, she tapes it for her own notes uh, to have a video. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And after the first hypnosis uh, session, you know, which I, they, she has it set up for us where I can't remember anything about it or I can't uh, have any kind of, you know, emotion about it or anything like that. So I come out of it, and I'm looking at her, and she's got it like her mouth is down to the table. I said, what's the matter? And I said, did I do okay? She says, how about if you tell me about uh, RAF Woodbridge? I think, and she says, we're going to need another special. And that's how that happened. I went, oh, no. I said, I hope I didn't say anything classified. That's the first thing I was worried about. (laughs) Someone's classified. Yeah. And so she says, no, you'll be able to review the the film. I'll let you do that. 
And uh, she says, but I won't do that until after the second session. And that's how it came about. And in there was all kinds of bizarre stuff. I mean, stuff I just don't understand at all. I mean, uh, crazy stuff, as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's why people should get the book, because it's so incredible that you're actually uh, recalled receiving messages in the lights and it was time travel and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. that's my sense of it, is when you were in that for, for that 45 minutes, there was more going on than you perceive. Well, I, it, it alters knows, your I mean, reality. Go ahead. Uh, well, the, the inter- well, that was one of the other problems. See, that is just when you think you've seen everything that could possibly ever impact your life in, in any way, like a like that incident. Uh, when I went back to Ipswich after it, I mean, I couldn't sleep at night for that. I mean, and uh, that's when I got up in the, in the middle of the night, and that's when I. Uh, um, I picked up my notebook and I was looking at it and I was looking at the glyphs. I don't know, I guess I'm in disbelief. I don't know what was going on. Um, questioning what I've seen, I guess. Um, and then, uh, I but I have these visions of ones and zeros. That's what I wake up with. I mean, oh my God, I was running to my, my my head. It was just crazy. It was like like I, I could read them in front of me. And... Um, so I'm thinking I got some serious trauma going on. I'm losing it. I mean, I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna have a breakdown over this or something, you know. And um, and anyway, I pick up the book, my notebook, and I started looking at the glyphs and that. And these are so clear in my in my in my mind's eye. I I, I get a pen. I start writing down, you know, zero 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 one one one. I start writing these out. And when I do that, I feel like a little relieved, okay? So it's really bizarre stuff. And uh, anyway, I write out as many as I can. My pen runs out. I get another pen. I'm panicking. And uh, I, 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 I write, uh, you know, 16 pages of it. And as fast as it started writing it, writing it down, it stopped. And when I stopped it, I had no more visions of these ones or zeros. So here's the dilemma. I know this is not right. There's something not right here. You know what I mean? Uh, this is not this pretty. This is a mental problem or something uh, due to from the incident. But what do I do? I do I go to the base hospital and I tell them that uh, I had an incident involving a craft on an origin, and then I, which is classified, right? Can't do that. And then I'm 30 miles away in Ipswich, and I start seeing ones and zeros, and I can't sleep, and I write them down. I'm okay then. I mean, you can't tell. I would have got relieved of duty. It would have ended my Air Force career. Um, you know, uh, it's um, it was a very difficult situation, yeah. It was but so I thought I dodged the bullet right after the, after the ones and zero stuff. Once I had them all written out, I figured I dodged it. And, you know, I was embarrassed by it. You know, uh, the, the I wasn't going to tell anybody that that happened. I mean, I mean, it was a, a period of uh, insanity for me, or something. You know, I'm pretty I was pretty embarrassed uh, about it. And besides, I could I could have affected my job, and they just got buried in my notebook in the back. And, uh, and I'm lucky I even kept. Well, now we know. The, yeah, now we know that it's important because one to zero is a binary code. Yeah, that's the binary enigma for sure. Let me tell you, I don't I don't understand it. I don't. Uh, and if Amazing. I was anybody else, I'd, I'd question the daylights out of it. I, I mean, I don't understand it myself, but I was there. I mean, 
Well, know back then we weren't really into all that, so now we know what it is because we've all seen it. Through, well, through the binary whatever. information came out, Char, the binary, actually, the first time I heard that was uh, in 1994 during the hypnosis, and they said I could see binary code, which I had no idea what that is, and meant absolutely nothing to me, okay? And yeah. Uh, yeah. then I went and do a film shoot in 2010 in Phoenix uh, for uh, with Prometheus Pictures, and uh, they were doing Ancient Aliens at the time. And we went out there, and I had my notebook with me at the shoot, and I'm flipping through there, and, they, and and John asked me a question, and about date, and I'm flipping through, but I went back too far, and when I went back too far, too far in the notebook is where I have those ones and zeros, my insanity, my madness. Okay, I don't want okay. anybody to see that, right? So when John yeah. sees that, along there uh, is uh, another uh, ufologist uh, uh, who was there, and. They said, what's that? I said, well, uh, well these are, uh, I was stuttering. I said, well, these are the ones and zeros I wrote down after the answer. I figured I got, you know, I'm caught out, you know. And um, and what's the difference? It's 34 years later. And then the other uh, ufologist said, well, those are, that's binary. I said, binary. And when she said that, I went, oh, in the hypnosis I mentioned that. So that's, so that's the first thing I, the first time I was clued into what that was. If I had known that 30 years ago, you know, I would have had a checked out or something, you know. Um, have you ever had it read, Jim? Pardon me? Have you ever had it processed in any way? Yeah, all 16 pages have been uh, uh, deciphered, and you know, of course, it has it has a message. It has uh, seven locations. Uh, uh, Coordinates that go around the world, uh, which is uh, more interesting. Uh, it's not just the code itself with that in there. You think that would be uh, strange enough? Uh, the, the, the well, here's the locations. Locations are in Sedona. That, you know, this is all New Age stuff now. I mean, Sedona in Central America. You know, Peru, um, uh, Egypt, uh, uh, Greece, and a place in China, and of course, just off the coast of of uh, Ireland and west of Ireland is another place that's in the ocean there. So, uh, you know, if that's not, uh, you know, bizarre enough, I, we have a research team that's working this right now. And what they developed over the last six months is they found out there's a code within the code. And that's probably going to be more monumental than just the binary if you, if that, you know, that's, it's uh, it's unbelievable, uh, and I'm it's not really going to talk about. No, the research is still going on, but it's I, it's I, and I just it's just impossible how something like that can come out from uh, a moment of insanity uh, writing it after the incident. Uh, I just uh, I'm just beside myself with that. I don't understand that at all. Now, where can, uh, where, what is your, are you speaking somewhere? Uh, what's your next event that people can attend? And then uh, where can everybody get your book? And do you have well, a website? The, well, the, uh, we, I do have a website. It's, uh, it's uh, the renderingforestincident.com. Um, the, the name of the book is, uh, uh, is Encounter in Renderings from Forest. It's by St. Martin's Press. Uh, you can get it 
it's available on Amazon.com in either hardcover uh, or in on Kindle. Um, you can also buy it at Barnes and Noble and other bookstores. Um, it's uh, I, it was written with the uh, uh, the uh, the other uh, guy that was out there with me, and then more importantly, the lead writer on it was Nick Pope, who was in charge of MOD uh, uh, UFO desk uh, in the UK. So there was no one better to probably marry up with to write this book. So we get both sides of the pond taken care of. Uh, Nick has a lot to add to it because of the MOD experience. And, of course, uh, we were coming from the uh, American uh, Air Force uh, aspect of it. Well, this is an amazing talking to you. All right. Uh, talking, or as far as uh, where am I going to speak, I just got done with a, a, a conference. I, I am going to be doing a television show at a conference up in Canada at a later date this year. I just don't have the specifics. Okay. Um, and there is some more documentaries coming out uh, about it, but I don't know the names of them. I can't help you <laughs> during production, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I don't well, know. you can go go to your site and then follow you, you know, if you yeah, wish on Facebook, it. if you want to have friends, and uh, just go to the site because you can't possibly remember everything because you're actually no. you're experiencing it at the same time because I don't feel that your experiences are over at all. I think that you were chosen to bring a message to us, and you were actually giving a binary code before any of us even heard about. You didn't even know what it was. I wouldn't have noticed you did, but, you know, this is a phenomenal case, and um, you're exceptional for your courage, you know, that you just just been out there with this. You know, it's it's incredible. This is the first time a lot of us have even heard about it. I've been hearing about it because I have many, many friends involved with it, but these details are, are just incredible to me. Well, Charlie, and I'm just, it's, great, fairly, yeah. it's, it's fairly new to actually the American, uh, you know, people yeah. right now as far as knowing about this. But this is probably the the most uh, documented. I know it's the most documented case with evidence and witnesses. And uh, the great thing is, is everybody's still alive. I mean, unlike yeah, Roswell. Yeah, and it's fairly I recent. Mean, yeah, Roswell. You know, we left. We lost Jesse Marcel, and he's gone, and his, his son is. Is picking up the gauntlet, so to speak, but we laughed a lot. A lot well, there, the there hasn't been witnesses to Roswell for years, okay? Yeah, I mean, that's right. So, people that were out there. Yeah, um, I think there's some yeah. potential. Why thing, would it just show what, itself? Go ahead. What's that? Go ahead. Why would it show itself to you for so long? It wanted to be sure to be seen and that you were, you were like, chosen for this thing. Well, I appreciate letting me live, okay? That's yeah. what I appreciate because I thought I was, I don't know, I thought I was in, in dire straits there. But one quick thing about Los Angeles, this is one of the recent stars besides I've known you on Facebook for, but right. um, the other thing is uh, the, the book Encounter from Forest, uh, Los Angeles just took over the lead for uh, book sales out there. So I said if there's that many people out in Los, Los Angeles area reading this book, I, I better go on her show. You better. <laughs> That's the way I thought. I, I this better is a go plan. on her I'm show so out glad. there. I'm so glad you did because this is what it's all about, you know, getting the information out there. And your book is extraordinary, and you're an extraordinary human being. And I want to thank you so much for being on. You're oh, welcome you're aboard kind. anytime. You're and very you kind. Take care. 
and okay. I will see you on Facebook. And uh, yeah. I'm actually going to recommend you to come out to speak with our group. And I, I think they pay for because you were in Michigan, Wisconsin. No, I come in Northwest Illinois. You're in Illinois, so I Northwest think we can have Illinois. you up. And I'm going to mention that to Yvonne Smith. I think you probably heard of her, but she's like the leader mm-hmm. of our group. So I'm going to try to have you in in person, and uh, we'll show you the town. <laughs> okay. Sort of. That sounds like well, a plan. These, though, we're pretty strange. Okay, so see you later. <laughs> Take care. Pleasure to meet you. Yep. Thank you, guys. Bye. Take care. Bye, bye. Wow. Um, I'm just bowled over by what he had to say, and I think our next guest is already on. And uh, we have Mark Harrison, and he's also uh, had 13 years of military service, and he grew up in New Jersey, and. Uh, He's a parent lifelong uh, contactee, and he's going to be discussing his experiences with us. And he just finished his uh, BS in business management, and uh, he has been having uh, uh, UFO experiences. His entirely family has witnessed UFOs and everything else. So, uh, Adrian, we're going to welcome Mark aboard right now. Mark, is this you? You're live with the Paranormal and Sacred. Yes, I am. Thank you for having me on. Hey Mark, I don't know if you oh, caught the beginning. <laughs> Fine, I don't know if you caught the beginning of the show. Uh, did you hear about the Rendlesham thing and all the military that were out there in the UK and everything? I um, I've seen it on YouTube and on TV, um, but I yeah. I was at work, so I just came in from work. So okay, that's all right. Well, welcome tonight. Thank you. I don't know if you've met Adrian, my co-host. Pleasure to meet you, sir. My name is Adrian. How are you today? Good. Both Shaw and I are experiencers ourselves, so we look forward to speaking with you. Oh, thank you. So give us a little background, Mark. Uh, Mark Harrison has had many, uh, and now we're thinking lifelong experiences with uh, aliens and UFOs and military watching you and everything else. So why don't you uh, give us uh, your background, Mark? Sure. Um, well, I'm a, like you said, I'm a lifelong contactee. Um, started at a very young age. Um, that was my first contact in Pennsylvania. And um, I witnessed three UFOs above our, a park behind our house uh, with my family, um, up close. <laughs> and uh, I've been having experiences ever since. I, uh, my first experience was, like I said, at a young age where I was uh, walked through a ship to a room, and I saw other people on the ship on tables and things like that, but I was just a kid, and they put me up on the table, took me to a room, uh, put me on the table, and uh, I went through some kind of examination, and that's pretty much what I remember. I don't remember actually seeing their faces, that they were just they were a little taller and uh, because the room was so bright, the, the entire room was nothing but light. Uh, so I wasn't able to see their faces, but I remember the experience to this day. And uh, I still don't like being touched by thumbs because that's exactly what it felt like, a bunch of thumbs um, touching me. So it was a unnerving experience, and uh, that was just the start of it. Wow, so you and your family have actually witnessed, because uh, you have moved uh, more west, right? 
I'm going to give you a location. Right. I'm in, in Las Vegas now. Okay. So many things have actually even happened there. Oh, this is, yeah, I, uh, within the past few years, it kicked back up again uh, when we purchased our new our home here. Um, I started seeing the ships again, you know, and uh, had a, a helicopter in my backyard, uh, which I which I watched. I, there was a point in time where I was waking up every day at about four o'clock, uh, usually four a.m. on the nose, and I would see the ships approaching from the west, and um, got to the point where I kind of interacted with them, you know, mentally, and. Uh, one night, I actually woke my wife up because I didn't want her to think that I was crazy. <laughs> um, I woke her up, and she saw the ship approaching, and it stopped, and it did a complete circle in the sky. And she was the first one to say that that just did a circle, and I said, yeah, that's exactly what I saw. She said, I, I never want to see that again. So that was the last time uh, she's ever witnessed anything, but... This went on for months and months, and then um, I'd say about two months in, I had a helicopter show up at about 3.50 a.m., um, shined its spotlight in my backyard, then went out to the front of the house, and um, just flew around in circles, you know, in front of the house. It had a little black helicopter, it had one red and one white light. Um, it didn't blink, they were just on solid the whole time. And um, normally in this area, because it's a highly traveled area for air traffic, um, you know, they have their strobes on and things like that. This helicopter didn't have any strobes. And um, I looked for police, you know, because I figured, well, maybe they're chasing somebody or something like that. don't want them around my house. Right. And um, no police cars, nothing. It was just this helicopter, and it knew exactly where it was going. Um it's, it, it hovered there for about, I'd say, five or ten minutes, and then it flew off, but it didn't fly off too far. And I watched it hover above a field for about ten minutes before it flew off to the east. Um, but they were definitely looking for something, and I figured, well, this, every time I was being woken up, it was about four o'clock in the morning. So maybe they showed up a little earlier <laughs> thinking they were going to see something, and it didn't happen. So a few days later, I started having you know, the sightings again, and I do have a couple pictures from those, uh, because I decided to take pictures just to show that I, I was seeing something. Um, in 2012, March, I woke up with a, uh, I think I sent you the pictures of the handprint. Yes, I remember the injection, that. The injection marks on my shoulder, um, and the handprint, and then the following March, and my wife was the first person to notice that when we woke up in the morning. She was asking me, what's that on your arm? And I said, what are you talking about? So I looked in the mirror, and, you know, everything was fresh. You know, my mom came over later on and saw it, and she really didn't want me to go to the doctor's because we you tell the doctor what happened, <laughs> you know. And um, the next year, around the exact same time, I had that same marking on the other arm, and uh, you know I went to sleep, didn't dream, and usually when I don't dream because I dream every night, I know something unusual is taking place. But I've seen 
in this house, I've seen greys. I've seen, uh, I want to say they're Arcturian. Um, they're taller, for sure. Uh, a little different color. They're not, you know, a little, they were a tannish color, actually. Yeah. Um, so these are conscious memories of seeing the beings? Oh, I've act, I was sitting up in bed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, I watched, uh, my son was sick. What, what's interesting is my, my son's cribs were at the foot of the bed. And one of my sons was sick, and I watched it go from my son's crib uh, across the room and through the wall. And I was sitting up the whole time watching it. And uh, when it passed between the cribs, I could get the whole body. Um, But I said, wow, you know, because when I saw it, I sat up. And my wife said, you know, what, what? So I said, nothing. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so she would go back to sleep uh, because I don't think she would would have been ready to see something like that. When but, it was going uh, through the wall, um, did it was there like an invisible barrier that it looked like it was going through something else that allowed it to go through the wall, or did it look like it never made it to the wall exactly? It right. just was walking towards the wall, and then it just was gone. Right. Okay. Was, I I say it walked through the wall because that's. It was close to it when it when it just disappeared on me. Um, now, the Arcturians that I saw, and I, I firmly believe that's what they were, uh, they looked completely different. They were much taller. Um, two of them had a hold of my legs. The entire room was glow with, like, an orange light. You call and, them Arcturians? Uh, what, what did you call them, Arcturians? Yeah. What are, uh, um, what are those? Um, they're like very advanced beings. I think Edgar Casey was the first person to actually talk about them. And um been around for a long time. Um, they're very advanced and I guess they're just watching over the planet, basically. But they're not interfering. Um but I saw them and I actually locked eyes with them for about 40 seconds. And I know a lot of people talk about, uh, a lot of debunkers, they want to talk about sleep paralysis and, and things like that. But when you're wide awake and you're sitting up in bed or you turn over and you're looking them in the eye and there's nothing, there's no sleep paralysis involved. And... Um, you know, the markings on my arm and the injections. And I have since, uh, since we last talked, I've actually uh, went through a hypnotic regression session to figure out what happened. Uh, oh, those. you did. What yes, were the results? Um, the first one in March of 2012, I was actually on a ship. I woke up, I was on a table, and uh, the room was curved. The ceiling was curved. Um, the lights were kind of green and white squares. It was it was odd, you know, the the way the room looked. But the doctor that there were ETs walking around me, but the doctor that uh, gave me the injection was human, and he was on the ship, like he was working with them. And uh, I guess I went to hit the sky. <laughs> And an ET actually put his hand on my shoulder and and kind of put me back on the on the table and 
the thought that I had was, why are you doing? Why are you always doing this? You know, like why am I always being physical with them? Yeah. And the only thing I can think of is, well, you know, you're <laughs> taking me into this strange environment. And because what they were telling me was that I was actually one of them. So they can't understand why every time I see them, I, you know, I want to do something. I lash out. And I'm like, well, I don't remember any of it. I fight <laughs> yeah. for my life, and they're shocked every time I do it. Because I'll yeah. be okay one second, and then when they touch me or, or do something, I see it out of the corner of my eye, I flip out. It's right. clear. So... Um, the second time, um, so what happened was they gave me an injection. I could feel it going traveling up and down my entire arm. Um, and um, the second time, I was actually on a military installation. And it was the same doctor. And um, when he was done, I could tell I was in a regular room because everything was, you know, gray tables chairs, you know, the uh, tabletop at the countertop, I should say, over by the wall. It was gray. Every, you know, the drawers and everything else. It looked like I was in a military hospital or something like that. So he had, they had my one arm strapped, I guess, so I couldn't do anything. But they strapped my arm down and they gave me an injection in the opposite arm. And um, I remember the, uh, I have it all on, I have it all recorded but the the doctor at the end, he just said, he just tapped my shoulder and said, you're going to be okay. And he walked out one way, and then three guys in uh, black camouflage with automatic weapons came in another door. And three of them were standing there like they were waiting for me. So that was pretty unnerving. Um, but the thing was, the one guy that was standing in the front, I realized during the hypnosis that I have seen him three times now. Um, when we were moving from this house, uh, when we were moving into our new house, uh, we backed out of the driveway here. We were staying with my folks while we were, you know, just finishing up the paperwork. And when I was backing out of the driveway, I we saw two ships. And they were moving across the sky really fast, and then they slowed down to almost a stop. And they just moved across for a little bit, and they just winked out. Well, as we backed out of the driveway, and I was pulling down the street, a um, car flashed its lights at us. Uh, it was a black Chrysler 300, never seen it here before. Um, and when I drove past the guy and I locked eyes, because I wanted to stop, because I didn't know what he was flashing his lights at us for. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife didn't want me to, so I kept going on to the house. Um, then I saw him. He was the one that was in front of the uh, the three guys in the, the camouflage uniforms. They, they were just black and gray kind of camouflage uniforms, and they had like a uh, black and red insignia on their left breast pocket. I do remember that. And... Um, I saw him there, and then just recently, about two months ago, when my kids were in school, I was taking them to school, and uh, I put them in the car, and as I put them in the car, there was a car coming down the street, and a guy drove past me really, really slow, and he was giving me this evil look, 
And so I looked at him, and I wouldn't leave my house until he drove down the street and rounded the corner because I didn't know what he was up to. And um, so he drove down my street really slow once he passed my car. And I realized that was the third time I had seen the same guy. And uh, my mouth is getting really dry because I'm going back through this whole thing. So it's... uh, Yeah. Do you need to get a drink of water real quick? No, I'm okay. I'm okay. Okay, It's just it brings back a lot of thoughts, you know, a lot of memories. So It is um, strange that um, you're being obviously watched now, especially since you moved where you are now. Yeah, it it seems like it's really picked up, like the tempo and uh, my son actually... uh, said he was taken and oh boy. Um, yeah and he how do you feel about that he had he does he has no idea of my experiences you know and <laughs> so uh, i have to believe that's exactly what he saw he told that same story to my parents to his mother you know and i have to believe that's what he saw i didn't try to get the information out of him i just said well tell me what you saw you know and uh, which, okay, you have four kids, and right. which one of which one are you speaking of? Which um, no, I have a four-year-old. He's soon to be five. Yeah, he's um, he he's the one that saw him. He's the youngest. No, well, I have a younger one than that. <laughs> but, you have another uh, younger one? Yes, I do. I have a Aww. son just turned three about four or five months ago, uh, back in March. Okay. So. You know, but, uh, when I my my son told me he saw what I once in a while I would see something that looked like it was on fire and it was orange, like in my dreams and stuff like that. But my son right. came out of the bathroom in the middle of the night one night, and he said he saw something orange on the lawn next door, and I was so upset. I was thinking, not my kids, no. And I right. I really we never discussed it, the UFOs after that. We discussed ghosts and stuff like that. But I would never talk to him about, you know, UFOs, and he doesn't want to talk about it to this day. Um, I don't right. know how you feel about this. How do you feel about it? Well, it's, it's you know, I don't really like it, but it seems like most of the time when they, I, I at least want to support him. You know, I'm not yeah. going to tell him that he has a vivid imagination or that he's just imagining things, you know, and or anything like that. I want to support him. If if that's actually happening, I'm going to explain it to him. You know, maybe help Good. him make sense of it instead of telling him that's not what he saw. You know, there's no such thing or anything like that. I, I would never do that to him. So, um, But from what I remember of all of the abductions, or I, I won't say they're abductions, they're more like experiences that I had. Um, with them, seems like they were always giving me a physical. I, you know, they weren't taking anything from me. It seemed like they were more checking up on me and seeing how I was doing. So, um, you know, they would have me hooked up to machines or something like that. Or, like I said, they were give, they gave me injections two years in a row, and um, I had the marks from one of the injections for a year. So yeah, and the handprint, well, which was amazing, that lasted for four months. I actually had that handprint on my body for four months. 
Um, now, how did you feel about that? Because I had a series of dots in a triangle that I sent. I think, Adrian, did I send you a picture of that? No, I haven't. No, I didn't get it. Well, it's like they're just very dark red dots that I thought were a tattoo, I swear. I said, now they're going to tattoo me? I was so mad that I thought they were permanent. They lasted a long time. They even showed up at night. I could, walk, I could see them in the dark. Right. But there's no I pain involved. There's no pain at all. These no, are bruises or something else. I've seen yours too. They don't hurt, but they don't go away and I, I feel I feel like that's obtrusive. I I don't like it. Right. No, I I didn't like it and I think that's why I tried to hit the guy that was trying to give it to me. Yeah. <laughs> and right. uh he was kind of sarcastic too, from what I remember, which I didn't like. The the second time I saw him he wasn't, but he was more business-like. I'm going to give you this injection, and that's it, you know. But um, it seems to me like every time that I've been taken, that's what they're doing. They're just seeing how I'm doing, basically. Um, one. And they're that saying I, that you're one of them, like right. you're a hybrid. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that before I was born. Um, the doctors had told my mom that I was not going to be healthy at all. So they told my parents that they needed to think about whether they wanted to have me or not. Uh, so at one point, my parents were seriously considering, you know, aborting me uh, oh because I was going to have a lot of physical problems and things like that while I was born completely healthy. And um, for some reason, they decided to keep me, <laughs> you know. Who knows why that is, but... I'm glad they kept you. Right. And wow. um, it seems like uh, I had a female come in my room after I had the first initial UFO sighting. Uh, a female came in my room, and I guess she's been with me my entire life, um, just basically watching me. You know, I guess she's been there through some of my abductions as, as well. And this is the female that your your brother also saw? Yeah, he saw. I saw her in Pennsylvania, and he saw her in New Jersey. And, and what happened was, uh, you know, when you're – I was a teenager at the time, but he was younger, so he wanted to sleep in my bed with me. And, you know, they get scared, and you're, I'm going to go sleep with my big brother. You know? So yeah. he happened to be in my bed, and she came in. He saw it, watched her come into the room. And she stood at the foot of the bed. She never spoke to him or anything like that. She just stared at him. And uh, he still has a hard time talking about that to this day. He's only actually told me about it once, but when I went through my regression, I decided to talk to him about it again. And uh, he doesn't want anything to do with that conversation. He's traumatized. He doesn't want to, you know, have a memory of it and... It's, it's, uh, I had my niece say that, that she said, and don't ever, I'm going to tell you this, I saw a UFO. She saw it with my uh, my ex, and uh, she said, but I'm telling you now. Now, this kid is only 12, but she said, I'm never talking about it again, and then she didn't. Yeah, uh, I think that's his thought process about it as well. He just doesn't want anything to do with it, and uh, he's trying not to remember it, so... Me bringing it up is probably just a sore topic for him, so 
He said he'll talk to me one day about it, you know, when he feels comfortable about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what does she look like? Um, I actually have a picture of her I can send you um, after the show. Um, she is... Her face looks sort of human, but her eyes are not. She has her eyes look more like ET, but they do have some color to them. And um, straight hair. I I'm, think she has straight blonde hair. Um, and she's been around me my entire life. So, <laughs> I guess she comes to see me often. I don't remember. Her. It, this is the interesting thing, and I haven't told my wife this yet because I don't know if she'll like this. <laughs> but um, she's supposed to be my significant other from somewhere else. Another dimension. Now right. she's not gonna like that. No. No, that's why I haven't mentioned it yet. Yeah. <laughs> but it's in my. Like it's a- in. If she listens to the regression, she'll find that out. But. Do you have a copy of your regression? Yes, I have a. I actually have two copies of it. Yeah, just so, just in case. So. Yeah, that's right. Stash one, you know, in case something happens. Wow. How do you interpret when they tell you you are us? um, Well, you know, how do you interpret um, the fact that um, they're obviously more intelligent than us? So, what do they mean by that? And they're different than us. What do they mean? You are us. I'm, this is what I gather from it. When I first started trying to identify which group I more identify with, that was the group that came up personality-wise and everything else. And I did a lot of research online about it. And um, one night, actually, when I was asleep in this house, um, I heard that word. At about 2 o'clock in the morning, it woke me right out of, out of my sleep. And I sat up in bed because I heard the, I heard the name Arcturian out loud and from the corner of the room. And it was like somebody had a loudspeaker or something that went off. And uh, it woke me up. didn't wake anybody else up, but it woke me up. And um, from what I understand in through my my regression was that I am here for a specific purpose. So I guess I'm from there originally and that's where I will go back to when I leave here. Because I I never, I know a lot of people think about, you know, past lives and things like that. But when I was younger, anything that I thought about that seemed like a past life where I was seeing myself as an adult um, was somewhere else. And I used to fly the ships myself. So I I think I told you on the last program, I, mm-hmm. my first actual airplane I ever sat in was a, a, a Harrier at Marine Corps Air Station Yuma. And um, I proceeded to tell the pilot, Without knowing, I had never flown in a plane or anything like that. I told him exactly how to fly it, and I was 13 years old. And um, they asked my parents, the pilot asked my parents, like, where'd you get this guy from? (laughs) And uh, my uncle is a Marine Corps officer, and my parents would just say, he's always been that way, (laughs) you know. 
And that was the end of it. So, but yeah, I actually sat in the cockpit and I felt comfortable. I felt familiar with the everything. And, and you were in the military too, as well, correct? Right, but I didn't have the ice. I always wanted to be a fighter pilot too, and that's all I ever wanted to be growing up. But I did. I don't have the eyesight for it. But what's interesting about that is when my eyes changed, my eyes have been the same ever since. <laughs> so. I've been wearing the same contact lens prescription for like 20-some years now, and <laughs> I can take one contact out and put it in the other eye, and I'm fine, you know. And um, they just went bad one time. Like when I got a little older, they just, I could see really well, and then all of a sudden my eyes just went bad almost like overnight. And I, you know, there went my dream of being a pilot right out the window, so... What does that sound like? What you what you think they're doing? If you had to guess, this this also came out in in my regression. Is that they told me that that I'm here to do something in March of next year. They didn't say a date, but every time she asked to get that information out of them, what am I here to do? They just kept showing a sign, basically flashed a sign in front of my face that said March 2015. And um, I have no clue what that is. They wouldn't divulge what that is, but they just kept saying March 2015 and showing me that sign. And uh, just keeps coming up. She asked, you know, at different times throughout the uh, regression, you know, what are you here to do? You know, why are you here? And they would never say why I was here. They would just show that sign that said March 2015 you know, 2015, no date, just, you know, just a month in a year. That's about seven months away. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, you got I me worried. I've worn this regression about my entire life uh, than I have known in 50 years. Um, oh, amazing. Because I had gone, tried to do the regression before, and it just didn't work. And so I was really skeptical about going into it this time. And um, well, who did you choose? Like, what what would happen? Uh, are you, do you know Nyara Isley? Um, I don't think so. But spell the name, please. Uh, Nyara N I A R R A. And Isley. she was actually interviewed in that. Movie, The Hidden Hand. Yes, yes. Have you seen that? She's actually in. That. I have briefly was looking at that, so I'll, I'll check into it more. So that's who did your regression? Yeah. Wow. And I I got more information out of that um, than I've known ever because what would happen through my experiences was. I would have the physical experience, so I would know the next day exactly what happened up to a point where I passed out, you know, because it would get to a point where I would panic, you know, not knowing why they were in my room and they're not answering my questions, and I would start to panic. And so instead of me panicking, they would just put me out, and I would just wake up the next day. But I would remember everything up to the point where I passed out. So I would wake up in the morning knowing exactly, you know, what happened up until a certain point. But I never knew what happened beyond those points. 
and um, I was able to fill in at least four experiences through that. How amazing. Are you going to write about this or anything? Yes, or? I am. Actually, I did start writing a book about this. Uh, and that's the that was the reason I decided to go ahead with the regression because it didn't work like I said the first time so I, I really didn't know what to expect I didn't know if it was going to work you know or anything like that but I knew if I was going to write about it I needed to have I needed to fill in the blanks you know I needed to know exactly what happened through the experience I couldn't leave anything out you know it's the mm-hmm. book would never have been interesting if, you know, I just said, well, I passed out, and I woke up the next day, <laughs> you know. Well, it's like that for many people, that's for sure. Right. And, it, and hip- I thought there would be fear involved with it, you know, with the hypnosis, because you don't really know what happened while you were gone. But there was no fear involved in it. it was I, I kind of had an inkling of what to expect, you know, so, you know, I knew something happened. I just didn't know what. But then there was only one painful incident that I had gone through where they jammed something in my in the side between my ribs. And even what, what was confirming about that is my mom was like, well, that's the side you always wince on for no reason. <laughs> you know, I always yeah, pain but there on is a side. reason. You know, and I found out that that's the reason. They stuck a device between my ribs uh, it, that's probably about six inches long. And when I asked the ET that was, he was monitoring a machine that it was hooked up to, why are you doing this? Because I was in a lot of pain. And he just said, because we have to. And that was the only answer I got. But I was in a lot of pain for a little while. And she said that I actually winced when that happened, and actually, you know, tears came from my eyes during the experience. So I was reliving the whole thing, including the pain. So. Um, wow. What do you yeah. think is the function of that device? Is I think it's just part of the, uh, when they are monitoring you first. I don't. I think that those injections were like booster shots of some sort. Uh, you know, maybe if I am from there, that there's something that I'm missing here that, and they need to come check up on me from time to time just to make sure I'm doing all right. You know, and um, maybe something I'm lacking that they have that I don't. And um, I, I don't know what that machine was for. I just know that it was holding it in my ribs, and uh, when they took it out, it didn't leave a scar. There was nothing. It was like it was never there. And um, it was uh, there was a lot of pain involved in it, but it was like they were just monitoring body functions or, of some sort. It was, it was. I really can't explain it because I, I really didn't know what the machine was for, and, and they never told me. Um, so. Can I ask you a question about that doctor again? Did you have a sure. feeling that he was he was a, a let's say American uh, human doctor co- colluding with uh, the aliens? Uh, and is that why you got mad? I think 
he he lives on that ship. Uh, you know, I I think he does time there and he does time here. And I remember what he looked like. I mean, I remember was, what my doctor looked like. I was just wondering. He was tall, uh, yep. you know, wore glasses. Tall. You know, wore glasses. Tall, brownish hair. I, I remember what he was. Not thin, but you know, he wasn't uh, heavy or anything like that. You know, no. he was pretty fit, and um, I just remember he was being sarcastic. You know, and I just remember I just wanted to hit him. So. <laughs> yeah, because well, here it is. Scared. Was he wearing like an insignia or a name tag of any kind? He had on a like a lab coat. Yeah, this you guy know, had a lab and, coat on, and mine had like a name tag because we're at. It seemed to me we we're at some military base. I had a feeling it was underground in Arizona somewhere. I just had a feeling mm-hmm. about that. But he looked at me in the eyes and he went, "She can see me." And they were saying, uh, well, she can't do anything. He said, I was so furious that he could see how angry I was because I, I could not move. I was frozen, but I was filled with hatred. I felt like he was betraying me. That's the way I felt. I, yeah, you know, I tried to get up off the table and I swing out. <laughs> really? Yeah. And one of the ETs, I never knew they could move that fast, but moved across the room, like, extremely fast and put their hand, and that's how I got the mark. They put their hand on my shoulder and pushed me back down onto the uh, table. Mm-hmm. And that mark stayed with me for four months. And I took those pictures um, probably a week after that actually happened because I wanted to document that it happened because who's going to believe that? You know, my mom yeah, saw it, my, it. My wife saw it, but you really don't have any proof other than, you know, the actual physical marks. Yeah, those and, pictures uh, are up on the blog talk radio from the last show when Sharp mm-hmm. put together the, I'm looking at it right now, and it's doing like a little um, picture show. And so those pictures of the lady that you drew, it's up there, and also the marks on you. Oh, okay, okay. Um, the The one with the the bigger triangle because they do have the device was smaller that they used on my right arm than the left arm the year prior but if you look at if you if you blow up the pictures you can actually see that the devices are the same because there's a mark that comes down it's almost like a hook that comes down off of one of the dots in each one of those photos and it's the exact same mark um so it was made by the the same device, except one device was just bigger than the other. Why would some devices leave a mark and some don't? Especially, I mean, one would think that when they inject something, that would leave a mark, but yet in another context, um, it doesn't. I know with me, there was I saw what looked like an incision sort of thing, and then it was just gone within a week. Um, you know, with other abductees, they have a lifelong mark. Why do you think that is? I, I just, well, I'm not sure if it has to do with what they're putting inside you. You know, maybe um, it, it seemed to me like one of those guns that they inject you with, you know, where they shoot the medicine inside you. That's what it seemed like. Yeah, to me. like an injection and, gun. Right, and 
the second time he was just all business and he just did what he had to do and he left the room and when he left the room the three guys came in the other way and uh, were just standing there watching me really I don't remember what happened after that or how I got home but uh, I do remember being in like a military type installation but I think that's maybe huh well, I'm glad you had that for your book. I mean, this is incredible documentation because so many of us just don't want to write it down or have a picture of it or anything. But, you know, uh, in that I, grow, I go to Ciro for support, a support group, and they always say, you know, please write it down. Please put it in your diary. Unfortunately, a lot of us want to forget it, but uh, we need to get the information out there and be prepared um, do you feel that you were told anything about the future or or given oh, any kind of information like that? I think it's a things? timing. I, for me, I believe it's a timing issue, and I'm not going to know what I'm here to do until that time comes. Okay. Um, that's the feeling that I get from it, is that, that you know what, this is the time frame, but we're not going to tell you exactly what you're going to do or why you're here. Um, but I guess after whatever happens, I'm going to live out my life here, and when I'm done, I will go back to where I came from. Wow. You mean what when you, you get older, or you mean like after you're done? Like, what are you trying I, I to feel say like here? I'm going to live here my life, and then I'm just going to yes. go back. Okay, yeah, I, okay. Well, one of your abduction experiences was actually on a military base, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Um, actually, yes, that I had two experiences on Yeah, I've had two actual experiences on military bases. Um, one was at Norfolk Base. Um, I went to school right outside the sub-base right there for a year and a half. And um, it happened in the barracks. That was the first time I ever had an out-of-body experience. And that's the state that they took me in. And that is one of the regressions that I remembered. And um, there were seven of them in the room with me at the time. And it's it's amazing but and hard to believe, but all they did was take me flying. That's all I did. <laughs> in other words, they took you out of your body. They left your physical body, but they took the, your, your soul or consciousness out. Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah, and mm-hmm. and I didn't know that they could take you in that state, um, but I guess they can. And all I remember from that was just cruising along and watching the trees go by really fast, <laughs> you know. And uh, that's all they did was they they took me to uh, cruise me around, you know, and they brought me back. And um, there was no physical encounter as far as you know checkups or them. I don't believe that I've ever had anything taken from me. You know, there's a lot of people that say that they've, uh, ETs have taken eggs and things like that from from females and uh, things from men, but I have never gone through that. Every time that they've taken me where outside of the time they took me flying, um, they were just giving me checkups. So they were just monitoring basically how I was doing. So that goes in to speak that they already have what you are what they wanted, 
and then you're going to go back eventually. Right, and I don't know if I was, you know, um, placed here, you know, and placed with this family, but I've always, since I was a kid, I've always looked at the stars, and I yes. always felt like that that's where I belong. And I, like I said, I, I could never relate to having... Um, People say they've had past lives here, and they, you know, they have their past life regressions and things like that. But I never yeah. could relate to that. And I've had people tell me, "There's you had to have a past life here," and I'm like, "I have never lived here before." <laughs> wow. You know, I'm a hundred percent certain never that I have before. never lived here. <laughs> right. And Amazing. Um, and I, I do tell people that, you know. I've, been in meetings where people have told me you had to have a past life here and I'm just like no I'm telling you I've never lived here before this is first time and the last time (laughs) (laughs) this is the first and last and I'm out of (laughs) here right as soon as I'm done I'm going how are you how are you feeling are you well I'm well I feel great I, I don't get sick often but now that my kids are in daycare, I, uh, I have been sick once. <laughs> yeah, they bring all kinds of germs home. Yeah, and they're just passing them around from each, you know, to each other all the time. So I did get sick the first week they were in daycare for a little bit. But other than that, I get sick maybe once every two years, maybe. Well, that's amazing. So, uh, but I, I, I haven't been to a doctor since I was in the military, and I'm fine. And the only reason I would go to the doctor then was because of uh, I had to. I was taking flight physicals and uh, things like mm-hmm. that. So I had to take. I had to have a physical and all that every year. And uh, I haven't had a physical since, and I'm perfectly fine. That's great. Um, uh, did you graduate from school? Are you still in school? Because I was wondering I what, have seven what months your left to go. plans are. <laughs> I have seven months left to go, so I'm going to be in school oh, until June. Wait a minute, seven months? Yeah. There are, well, when, uh, yeah, June of next, well, not seven months, but um, okay. pretty close. So I'll graduate. I'll walk in June of next year. Oh, excellent. So you're going to you're gonna walk there in some college where you are? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to walk here in, in Las Vegas. Cool. Congratulations on that. Then, um, yeah, thank you. Mark, how does it? How do you? How do you feel about the fact that they're um, when you ask them questions that they're just being mysterious or even somewhat cryptic to you? How does that? What kind of thoughts come through your mind that the fact that they use that sort of approach with you? Some, yeah, the way I felt about it was that. I'm not supposed to know until that time that I'm supposed to know. Like, uh, they're not going to tell me anything in advance. You know, if they did, I would be thinking about that (laughs) until it happened, you know, every day until that time came around. And I think they don't want me to do that. They just want me to live life here, and then when the time is right, then that time is, you know, that day comes around. They're just going to go, hey, this is what you're supposed to do, and I'll 
just remember maybe. You know, um, whatever I'm supposed to do, I guess I probably already know. And it's just recessed in my mind somewhere or something like that, and it's not going to come out to the forefront until, you know, that day comes around I'm supposed to remember. But that's I right. Think trying, I do. I I agree. I think that's the. They're just um, they're being vague about that because they don't want me to know. They don't want me to stop living. You know, you'll. I mean, think about it. If you knew exactly what you were going to do and why you were here to do it, um, that would be that would consume your entire life. You know. Your every thought would be of that. So uh, I guess they just want well, you to live a normal life. Some, until yeah, because there's these theories that you know that um, there is a there is a let's say have you had blood work done or anything? Do you know what your uh, blood type is? My blood type is O positive. O positive. Mm-hmm. Is that the blood type that it's uh is that rare or, or No, it's pretty common, I think. Um is that the common one? I'm just yeah. wondering because there's people that are saying that uh some people uh are living here and they do have a purpose here and they are from somewhere else and that they call them hybrids and I, I really don't like them because I, I, I the, to say that because I feel I'm the one of the ones that they take all the babies. So to me to call my own kids hybrids really makes me nervous. It doesn't sound right to me. Right, because like they're a part else. of you, really. Yeah, they're a part of me, so I wouldn't be calling me a hybrid. I don't right. know. I feel more like a, almost like a walk-in, honestly. Like I, Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. I, like I'm, you know, I was placed here, basically. Uh, because that, like I said, you know, uh, and my mom's free with telling that story, you know, that they were actually going to get rid of me, you know, prior to me being born. So, um, and that's what was recommended by the doctors. And for some reason, they didn't do it, and I was born healthy. I'm just glad that that happened because you never know. Because uh, what year were you born? Uh, 1964. Yeah, it's um. You know, we're so fortunate just to have you have you with us, really, because anything could have happened back there if they panicked and just didn't, you know, keep going forward. Right, and I, I wonder sometimes, you know, what made them decide to stay the course. You know, what what made them decide to to go through with it? That question's never been answered, really. Yeah, it's like they're. It's like go ahead, Major. Oh, thanks, sir. Um, so some of the stuff that came out during hypnosis, um, I'm trying to just figure certain things out. When they were telling you they're gonna, you're gonna find out certain things when the time's right. That came out under hypnosis, correct? That's correct. Okay, now, um, why wouldn't they let you have that as a conscious memory? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I. I, I've always felt like I was here to do something. I told, used to tell my mom at a young age that I was here for a purpose, you know, that I was here for a specific reason. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, and they just kind of blow it off. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Know, I hope so. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I I I don't know. I guess they just didn't want me to um, continually think about that. You know, of what I'm what I'm actually here to do, or or anything like that. Yeah. But um, that's the only way well, I can really answer it because I I really don't know. <laughs> I don't know why they are being so, you know, like, secretive about it. But now they've decided to let me know the month and the year. Mm. And I try not to share that a lot because of the fact that, you know, I've seen so many people predict that this is going to happen and predict that is going to happen, and then that time frame comes and, and goes. And you're like, okay, well, uh, <laughs> right, right. Your credibility just went out the window. Yeah. yeah, maybe it'll be some kind of a developmental thing. We don't know what it's going to be, but right. I remember everybody was uh, giving at the end of Sylvia Brown's life. They were giving her a really hard time, and I don't, I didn't understand why they were giving her such a hard time because nobody's perfect, you know. But she was right. giving her a really hard time. But I remember watching her, and I really miss Montel show. But anyway. Uh, I was watching her on Montel, and uh, she said what she what they were asking, you know, what about the future? What she do we really worried about? She said she's really worried about the infrastructure of the United States, of all the pipes and all the old whatever. Now look what's happening. We've got big potholes we've never heard of in this whole planet. All over the world, everything's going up in the pothole. Oh, I agree. And I you know what I mean? She said that, and I remembered it distinctly because it was such an odd thing, like, what do you mean our infrastructure, like our street's going to cave in, like whatever she was saying. And she was right. saying, yeah, she just said it's going to happen all over the whole nation. And as a matter of fact, it's happening all over the world of these bizarre, you know, sinkholes. Uh, the earth has changed, you know. Right. And I, I think we're damaging it even more, you know, with the fracking yeah. and everything else that they do. You know, it's nobody really, really knows bizarre. what's going to happen with the fracking, you know, <laughs> you know, demolishing the earth a mile deep, you know, <laughs> eventually there's going to be something that happens because of that. And, um, you know, it's a, there's a purpose with all of this is that I think that we're concerned and I think the people that are and the forerunners that have been chosen or abducted for the genetic thing, whether they are hybrids or whatever, I think that we're all chosen for a reason so we'll be strong uh, whenever this this stuff is coming down. I mean, I've never heard of a sinkhole opening up underneath somebody's bed and the person's gone. Right, I mean, and that this is odd, some odd stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that happened in Florida. Remember that? It's so yeah. odd to me. And uh, then that big old hole somewhere, and I don't know if it's Russia or what. It's just bizarre. And then we're having the same thing that just happened up in, uh, you know, up here, Adrian. Is that to the Hollywood area or whatever? Anyway, the 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 whole pipes went went array and everything else, and uh, um, that poor lady said all this, you know, and she didn't give credit. All they did was make her miserable at the end. But anyway, I just wanted to give little Sylvie Brown uh, I thought My that. mom watched Carol Montel every week, <laughs> or every time she was I know, on, actually. I know. I always watched it, watched it. And, you know, he's still uh, doing a lot of infomercials and stuff like that, so he's still making a living, you know, but... I, I miss his whole style, you know. So right. anyway, so 
so what, do you have any projects up ahead, or are you going to keep going to school, and you're writing a book? Uh-huh. Right, and I'm trying to uh, start writing a book about my experiences, and like I said, I needed to have the regression to understand what happened after I blacked out on some of them. And I wanted to know how I, how I received the marks. You know, just going to sleep and waking up in the morning and going, hey, there's marks on my body. You know, have somebody point that out to you is kind of unnerving because you know something happened, but you don't know what or why, you know. And I needed the answer to those questions in order to write about it. So that's why I decided to give uh, hypnosis another another try. Well, I think you found the right person. Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it, too. And, you know, their techniques or, you know, how they put you under. Because I really didn't know what to expect. I thought I was going to relive the encounter like I'm living right now, and that's not the way it seemed to happen. You know, I was getting glimpses of this, and then this would happen. And um, I would get stuck on parts. Like when I saw the guy's face for the third time, yeah. In my mind, I said, I stopped, and she couldn't get me to go beyond that because I, in my mind, I, I guess I was having, you know, reliving seeing this guy, and I'm like, I've seen this guy like three times now, <laughs> you know, and there's no reason for me yeah. to see this guy three times, <laughs> you know, and I know yeah, that's the one with the government some, somehow, some faction of yeah. the government. And, um, and you've even had, heard voices in your house that you found out that absolutely. were probably government. Absolutely. What uh, I was hearing two guys talk behind me for probably a week and a half, close to two weeks in, in my house. And uh, I could hear them talking about me like they were standing right behind me. And finally, after hearing this for a week and a half, I just turned around. And I said, you know, if you have any questions to ask me, you can just ask me because I can hear you. Oh, and then boy. it just stopped. <laughs> but, <laughs> so one oh, day, um, my mom was coming over to watch the boys. Well, uh, my wife was out for a second, and she took the, the boys with her. And when my mom got there, she she has keys to the house, so she, and they know the alarm code, so they went in. She went in by herself. And... Um, she walked in, and she could hear two male voices talking in my living room. There was no TV on. The alarm wasn't disturbed or anything like that. That's the first thing she checked. But she would not walk all the way back to the living room. She said that the voices were not coming from, in, from you know outside the house. They were inside the house, like they were standing in front of the TV. And she turned around and walked back out the house and sat in her car until my wife got there. Wow. And she told my well, wife about Well, that's your witness. Right. That's and, what I said. You know, that validates. Anything that I can get that validates something that's happened is important, you know, because oh, it shows yes. people that you're not making this stuff up. It's This is really happening. And, you know, this does happen to other people. It's not just me. And it's not just you. It's yeah. You know, there's a lot of people this is happening to, and a lot of people just don't believe their stories. Forty you know? seconds yeah, left. Okay. Well, we're coming at the end, and um, Mark, it's been great having you, and I thank you so much for coming on the show again. And then we need to have you when you get your book done, and 
will help you promote your book. Uh, it's just I'm very interested in uh, what you have to say. Well, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to forward you um, my regression session so that you can hear it for yourself. Oh, yeah, I'd love to hear that. As long okay, as you're I'll, I'll keep it confidential. <laughs> okay. No, but okay. I'm going to send All that right. because I'd, I'd like you guys to hear it for yourselves. And let me know what you think. I will. Thank you so much, Mark. It's a pleasure to interview. interview. Thank you so What's much, that? Mark. Take care. I'll oh. see you later. Okay, you have a great night. Okay. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Wow, just a just an interesting, kind guy that has been through a lot. It sounds like to me, and uh, oh, there's nice. still more to more to come. And uh, I did have uh, a, a question in chat that uh, I'm not sure they can still hear us, but they wanted to know what the aliens look like. And what he said is that they were like typical grays, but then he did see some that looked like tall Nordics or something like that. Didn't he say that? Yeah, Octarians or something, something to that effect. Yeah, um, he didn't describe it. I, I don't, I don't know what that means. I have to look it up. Maybe that's what that means. What you said, but yeah, he did say. I think those are those blondes, those like those Nordics. Are, yeah, probably. And so, um, yeah, but he did see gray, so it looks like they're it's both of them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I. So. Uh, Adrian, um, also I wanted you to tell people about, I, I just am, uh, my oh, mind is whirling with all the information that I got tonight from uh, Jim Tennyson and Mark. Want to shoot the breeze for a few minutes? Pardon me? Want to shoot the breeze for a few minutes? You can tell me your, what you think of the past Yeah, what I think is, is that <laughs> I, I got to accept for this book, so I've been, and I've been, uh, uh, you know, researching uh, the book, the rendition book, and all that. But um, I didn't know about the bubble thing until yeah, I, I knew about that. that. I didn't know what it was called, but I, I think in past interviews a long time ago, <laughs> it was like when he was in it. It's like you're in something. Um, yeah, but I'd like exactly. to make a correction as far as the the uh, binary binary code system um, is not new to us as far as humans. Maybe it was new to, to him and some others, but, um, I mean, the, the concept of using ones and zeros, um, that was actually back in 1679 by a mathematician, great mathematician and philosopher um, Leibniz. He derived that system of logic um, of using ones and zeros because he thought that, he theorized that perhaps life could be reduced to these kinds of, of codes. of use. So the concept of using ones and zeros as a way to communicate sorts of things um has been around for a while then when the first when the digital computers were coming out all all computers use those ones and zeros so, sorts of things so um it's been around for for um a while he probably wasn't aware of that of course but the, the, no, the notion the notion know. of binary using ones and zeros to to communicate that's that's not a new idea and we we've been aware of that for a while as human beings i mean yeah, I wonder because uh, a couple of people were mentioning that it reminded them of what was going on in that movie Knowing, and that's one mm-hmm. movie I've watched. Even though it's pretty new, I've watched it at least ten times now, and and it is about like a code that was left it's from the fifties. It was put in a time capsule, then they pulled it out currently, and it turned out to be coordinates of uh, different areas of where disasters, and it did predict the end of the world and all that too. 
and I, I watched that, and then the world's going to start over somewhere else, you know. So, But it was phenomenal to actually hear about this because I think he thought that I read that and I knew that. I did not know that, but I have experienced it. Yeah, the binary messages when he, he had it confirmed by two different um, people that didn't know each other, and they, they came up with the same translation for the yeah, binary. Yeah, that's and and it, um, it they were talked about that they're, you know, um, studying our p- progress or something to that effect. And it talked about um, seven locations on on the planet. There were coordinates given, and so um, maybe those are special sorts of you know where where there's energy sources in certain parts of the planet. I don't know, but um, so in- interesting information came out of those binary codes. You know, yeah, they're, they're just, uh, independently corroborated, which I think was is interesting. It's a trip, and what it's doing to my brain is just like making all like the puzzle pieces fit in. That a light could actually have messages in it, also. That there's, remember, I told you. Oh uh, yeah, lights can. There's computers that's been we have that. Um, I just remember years ago, a relative of mine one was. Um, I think it was UCLA. I talked about how they they have. Where they're experimenting with computers. I mean, they have computers that use light as in, in information. You know, I mean that. It sends, I mean, that's what a CD player does, right? It's mm-hmm. <laughs> it's your sight's sending a laser light, and it's taking the, the information from the the bumps and grooves from the CD and translating that through through the light to your to your computer. So the notion of using light as as information that's that's totally plausible because. Um, we're doing it now. You know, fiber optics and, and, and all that stuff. In the 80s. Yeah, so, so it's all, it's you know, that's what's so strange that that you know that he is sincere. You know, he is just talking about what happened. Oh, Jim, you know, and, yeah, he's totally yeah, talking he's, about Jim. Yeah, I just and that totally I didn't sincere. know how rich with information witnesses corroborating evidence. I don't know of any other cases like this. Yeah, yeah, he's I a typical is, military I guy. I have relatives yeah, who are really military really talks. Is. You can tell when somebody's been, and my, my father was, and the, the, uh, other people in my family. And, um, you can tell somebody's in the military. He was definitely in the military. He talked like well, it and uh, felt like he was on the, he's definitely on the up and up. He's not a BSer. He really is. No, he's and, not. Uh, and it's very yeah. compelling to listen. Didn't you feel like when you were listening, you were just being, you could actually see what he was. Um, yeah, just, I did. It's and just, just getting uh, really drawn into it, like like there was a movie going on in my head as he was um, narrating. It was, so it was just I, so compelling. You know, I, I just. There's information on YouTube about this. There's his books out, and I encourage you to go to his website again. And uh, that's about the rendition. But go to Jim. Tennis, T-E-N-N-I-S-T-O-N. So you can Google him, and all his information is out there. So if you uh, want information, and also, um, let's see. Well, how are you doing, Adrian? What's going on? What's going on in your place? I'm doing doing fine. Um, I was really excited about the show. I was just thinking about it uh, all day. So that's what, um, what I've been doing. Um, uh, work working on my philosophical stuff. Um, I like to ask. I love ask, asking questions to other contactees or abductees or whatever. Um, of what what they're going through, and it's just um, 
There's a lot there to process. And, uh, there's a lot to process. I have a good feeling about what we've heard tonight about all of it, you know. And, yeah, I mean, uh, Mark, I wonder, uh, I mean, I mean what do you think? I wonder if Peniston was, I'm totally speculating, of course, but, I mean, given that there was definitely an element of missing time, I mean, when when I watched um, the, there was, when I did my own research and stuff, there was, uh, I watched all, a lot of videos and stuff um, and, and some mm-hmm. reading, but there was one in particular, you probably heard of the series Alien Mysteries, and yeah. he he talks about, um, Jim says that when he talked about the 45 minutes has passed and the discrepancy, um, I was trying to get him to admit, to say it on the, on the interview, but on the series, he says that actually two and a half hours have passed. Two and a half hours have passed. Two and a half hours have passed, but only 45 minutes from their perspective. They didn't understand it. So like, that's what I was we've only about. been gone for almost 45 minutes, and yet two and a half hours have passed. Well, that's missing time. That's actually a time warp kind of weird thing. Well, yeah. You know, if, if two hours is going on on the outside, but two and a half 45 hours. minutes have passed, two and a half hours. Yeah. Well, you know, this is this is great, uh, great because. This falls in with my uh, strange experiences that I have quite frequently <laughs> of missing time, not only missing time, but a whole town on different time than I'm at, you know? If so memory serves, maybe I'm correct. Memory serves, I think I've heard in, uh, years ago also, I, I don't know if it was, maybe it was Jim or maybe John, I don't remember, um, Jim Penniston or John Burroughs, but um, I, if I recall, this was years ago, that when they went, when the one of them went to approach the craft, it was as if um, everything was slowing down, like they were in a different time. And then when you stepped away from the craft, everything seemed to be more normal. Um, I'm wondering wow. if that's wow. I'm wondering if that's what he was tacitly conveying. Um, but it does match up with the 45 minutes for two and a half hours. That's a huge discrepancy. It is. You know? It is, it's, and. Uh... I wonder why all the forces didn't come in. That was another thing. What were they, what were they seeing, and what was he experiencing? Uh, maybe people were actually seeing and hearing two different things along with uh, the time discrepancy. Because when that happened, because remember it was me and my grandkids in the library. We were experiencing a whole different. Um, I get a little scared to talk about it when I'm talking about. We were uh, experiencing a whole different time than everybody else. They were actually recognizing me as someone I wasn't and having experiences that I didn't have. And uh, my grandsons didn't understand what they were talking about us either. I was very irritated, but it happened in, that was Redondo Beach, and it happened in Hermosa, the same thing. And then all the lights and all the power was shut off in both towns. But wow. they, weren't, they, would, they were saying, not the lights in the library, because, of course, we'd all have gone, right? It was only right. locking the the bottom car lot that has to be done with a key. It was it was locked. Everybody's cars were locked in, and the elevator didn't work. But everything in the in the Elson Library worked. But when I went into the restaurant uh, town over, uh, they said, "Well, our stove shut off and the lights are off." I was like, "What?" And he said, "Yeah, just the timer went off. We don't know why. We can't get it started again." So I said, "Well, can you make me a sandwich?" And so we ate the sandwich sitting there. And then we went home, and then, you know, a whole other weirdness started. It's just very odd. 
Because when you're in it, you're aware there's something different. I you're suspect not quite something. Sure, yeah, I mean, I suspect something more happened to him than he. I'm, I'm referring to Pennison. Yeah. Than he realized because, I mean, we do that to ourselves. In other words, because he mentioned how he was interrogated by the OSI, right? I mean, he wrote four pages and then um, they sanitized it to like you know half a page or a page or whatever. Um, right. But then under hypnosis, it turns out you know wait a second, they interrogated me more than once, you know, and then the memories were recurring, and they they do they they. They give you false memories and make you recognize, remember stupid stuff. And so when you wake up, you, you don't know what's true and what's not true. But it came out, wow, it looks like I might have been um, interrogated by them one more time. And so that's us doing it to us, okay? And that yeah. you didn't realize that then under hypnosis, okay? So we can do that um, on various levels. Well, then that means he didn't under, he didn't remember conscious he didn't have conscious memories of all his interactions with the OSI and that's human to human therefore isn't it reasonable to assume that given his interaction between the craft that there were things that happened that he just doesn't remember do you know do you get my meaning yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, and, we, uh, we're doing it so I suspect even more than he might even under hypnosis maybe everything didn't come out but at least the the binary stuff, I thought that was interesting how he described how when he would write it out, all of a sudden a sense of relief <laughs> um, it came out. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I think one of the interesting things about the, the Rendlesham 2 is because you know that the, the bunkers are skeptics, they just love, they just want to tear up the Rendlesham. And um, the UFO hunters, I don't know if you're aware of, on season one, um, there was a, uh, the... Um, episode entitled Military versus UFOs, they did a solid job of debunking the debunkers as far as the lighthouse. Oh, yeah, you know that's Because one of the, the favorite theories, well, the favorite theory of debunkers, that, well, well, all they're seeing is, you know, lots reflecting in the, from the lighthouse. It, was, it wasn't really a craft. You know, you know that, that's obviously not true because they actually, you know, Jim Pennison touched it, right? Yeah, he touched and, uh, <laughs> and they they saw things, you know, and Hall talked about a thing winking in and out going through the trees and stuff like that. But uh, uh, another piece of evidence that, I mean, a solid piece of evidence is when they were talking to Key, a guy named Keith um, Siemens, he was a lighthouse attendant. And according to him, because they noticed um, one, one of the uh, uh, UFO hunter guys said, you know, well, there's a piece of metal on the lighthouse in, in back of the light, so it's making the light shine, you know, towards the ocean, not towards the air base. How long has that been there? And he says it's always right. been there. Always been there since when it was first erected. So even the 19th, it's always been there. So the, the notion that the light was being reflected um, was shining towards um, the, the base just couldn't happen because of that metal piece. It was, it was there in back of the light to make sure it would it's reflect out moving. the ocean. Because right truly he, right. he sees the light. It's the, the ships that need to see the light so they don't crash, you know. Um, it doesn't need to shine into them. So that makes perfect sense. So that's totally debunked. They thoroughly debunked that. I thought you would find that um, interesting. I'm sure, I would imagine that that's in um, the book, probably in other stuff. Oh, that, yeah. Yeah, that's, but that's it, a good it's idea. Just, it's like the more you dig, the more solid that case becomes. You know what it's I mean? So yeah, and I it's do. So, it's, uh, it's compelling. Yeah. And the, the, the people it's that are involved. It's mesmerizing, and, and, you know, a lot of 
the people that we know are, are really uh, in with this, and uh, uh, you know they're writing and and doing whatever they can on this, and uh, it's 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 great, and I'm really glad that uh, we were able to go over it and get more information and hear some new things, and uh, I'm just really impressed with uh, Jim Penniston and Mark Harrison and having the courage to just talk about their experiences. You know, and they were both military. They have no reason to lie, you know. And it's just just more information out there for people to hear, you know. And, uh, Adrian, why don't you tell them uh, about your website? Because you, you're really uh, doing a lot of uh, excellent writing uh, and um, doing essays and stuff about this topic. Um, I have a website called ufophilosopher.com and some of I know those maybe those who are hearing that for the first time why would I have a website called ufophilosopher.com I'm into UFOs but I'm also a philosopher so I'm a philosopher of ufology of UFOs and I'm using most philosophers and are, are trained in the analytic tradition um, and so I incorporate that I, I wrote a paper on the notion of unidentified. Um, it's it's countering um, Dr. Tyson's view of the phys- eminent physicist because he says, you know, when you're saying unidentified, that means you can't talk anything about it. I counter that. I'm writing a paper on the nature of friendship and aliens. Can can there be a friendship between um, aliens and us? Aliens in the sense that that they're not us. Sure, there could be interdimensionals. But I, I lay out my um, propositions and, and, and pre- presumptions, and then I write into it. So the conclusions I think are, are going are interesting. I'm finishing that up. I got uh, a little more than three quarters of it done. I'm sort of um, tidying it up I'm, and trying to draw, draw out some conclusions. I'm also writing a paper on the propositions for ufology, ufologists to consider that I think are, are important, and I'm also writing a paper on the challenges to ufology, I think there are six challenges that 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 um, the ufology is dealing with and needs to be reconciled. And so those are the kinds of things I'm, I try to make sense of perspective of what's going on in ufology. Some some people are study um, sightings. Some some people study um, like um, um, Dr. Richard Haynes. He studies, you know, um, his specialty is pilot sightings. Um, um, Ted Phillips does trace case, you know, where actual landings happening, and he that's his specialty. Um, other people use employ more of a journalistic approach and do interviews and, and whatever. And I use my approach is to try to make sense of the existing because there's um, ufologists have done a great job of getting like Stanton Friedman, Bruce Maccabee, and Jacques Vallée. I mean, they've there's so much great data that 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 um, exists, and also James McDonald. We can't forget about James McDonald, you know, um, atmospheric physicist. Um, yeah. And it's so easily he he he's done so much for ufology too, as far as just giving us the the really cool data. I'm trying to make sense of it as a philosopher. That's in part what we do. I'm doing it right now when I help on when I co-host. And um, being an being experiencer myself, I think it gives me the extra edge. So I'm more open to, not only more open to the experiencer phenomenon, but also um, I would argue even a, a little bit more knowledgeable than someone outside to try and understand it because I've experienced it first, 
firsthand. So I'm trying to make sense, bring it all together from a philosophical point of view, seeing what everybody's saying, what are the conceptual tool sets are being said, and then trying to get a sense of perspective and meaning of what's going on, especially the abduction phenomenon. What does it mean? What's really going on? Um, science, isn't, science is necessary and crucial, but it's not the only thing. I mean, um, because some of, many assert, you know, Jacques Vallée and others, that science will, you know, we need to, that's what's going to resolve it. No, it's not, because, for instance, I'm writing a paper on the nature of friendship, you know, the, the ethics. How we, if we, we can be friends with aliens, can we? What's the nature of friendship? Well, that's a strictly philosophical issue, not a scientific one, but also a, a very important one that can be done rationally. Um, science is not the only rational system, so I, I, I have a rational conversation as well. Okay, these are the things that, are, that we consider as friendship, and we agree to these sorts of propositions of what we think aliens are, wherever that might be, interdimensionals or, or extraterrestrial, whatever. There's certain things we assume. Can we be friends with them, and can they be friends with us? And I think the, the answer is, I don't want to give too much of a spoiler, I think it's, it's an interesting one. It's not what... We were thinking it's not, not so clear and simple. Um, right. So go to ufophilosopher.com. Yeah. <laughs> no, I went off of it. Ufophilosopher.com. Well, no, because I, I want to just keep some of it back so uh, they can explore uh, what you have That paper will be coming site. out. Hopefully, I'm working out. Um, hopefully, um, I'll finish writing it this month. But once I'm done, done with the paper, I don't just put it out. I need to read it like at least 20 times. I use the yeah, academic. Make sure I dot my, you know, because no matter how many times you write something, or, or when you write careful, you you make mistakes, and so. Um, yeah, I'll, always, always. And it'll probably be done this this month, but it, realistically, it's not going to come out till sometime till the end of September. Because even once I'm done writing it, I want to make sure it's it's all there. Mm-hmm. Writing philosophy is mm-hmm. not as easy as as people would think, because collecting data and putting it out there that's that's. Um, intellectually, that's that's a much easier. But trying to make sense of it and trying to make things logically consistent, give meaning to it on a meta level, um, that's very difficult. And so that's what I'm trying to do. So I apologize if my stuff's coming out slowly. But whatever I do, put out at least. Be sure it's at least quality work. That's right. It's quality. And I do and appreciate uh, you letting me. Um, that, so it's, yeah, ufophilosopher.com and my email address is adrian at ufophilosopher.com and I have a Twitter. Um, um, no surprise, uh, you're a philosopher. <laughs> Thanks, Adrian. And then uh, to get uh, Jim's book, Jim Penniston, Encounter in Rendlesham Forest, The Inside Story of the World's Best Document UFO Incident. And I found it right on Amazon. So it's uh, with Nick Pope and John Burroughs and uh, all the witnesses over there. So be sure to get it. And it's only uh, a little less than the, the four, four, almost 15 bucks on uh, paperback, or you can get a Kindle for just 11 bucks. And um, if you want the hard copy, you know it's going to be 19 bucks. So anyway, get it on Amazon and uh, support them. And also, uh, Mark Harrison is working on his book, and we do support our authors and people who put things out there. And because uh, I really, really believe in having that book in your hand and the information, I read it over and over. And next week, Linda Godfrey of the Cryptozoology fame, who's written easily 15 books, has a new book out, and it's America's Monsters. And I'm reading it. I already got it. I got a copy of it. Yeah, 
I got a copy of it before she got a copy of it, so I've been reading it and going over it. I love it because it's talking about my favorite, the Mothman. I don't know why I love the Mothman so much, but I oh, do. Oh, you're into the Mothman? Yeah. I'm into the Mothman. I'm a secret Mothman or whatever they are. I'm one of yeah. them. So I like the whole bizarreness of it all, I guess. And uh, so it goes into everybody from Kupakaja to very odd things I've never heard of, land, air, and sea. So uh, it's a really great book, American Monsters. So she's going to be telling us about next week. And uh, that's that's it for today. And it's been Yay. great having you, Adrian. You're just a, a awesome co-host, and I really appreciate it. I think you add sophistication to this outfit, and I really appreciate you being co-host with me. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it. You're doing a wonderful job, and I'm, I'm humbled and um, appreciative of you letting me be on the show. Today was a yeah. great, great show. I mean, just back-to-back, what wonderful guest. Wonderful yeah. guys, and uh, I want to just tell everybody, hang in there. If you have these experiences and you need to talk about it, you know, you can always find me on the Paranormal Sacred uh, is on the Facebook. Leave a message there, and that's where I catch up with everybody at. And, of course, you can, you know, always contact one of us and uh, leave a message. And my uh, email is citizenmccain at hotmail.com, and you can write oh, there. Oh, yeah, by the way, okay. let me a quick a plug. Um, Go ahead. Um, uh, if you want, if you want to mention yourself, you can go ahead. I, I don't want to, but I know I'll be. Um, oh crap! The names. The, the um, John Elias is is working Where? on a, a documentary. Oh, John Elias. You know. Yes. Oh and yeah, so he, that's for us. He's going to be put. He wants to um, get together with me and uh, film film me and uh, talk about my experiences. And uh, I think you're in there as well. Plug, plug. Yeah. John Elias of Revolution Radio. He is an awesome guy and listen to Revolution Radio. Um, he's one of the most trusted guys out there for any radio interviewing or anything. And uh, we're lucky enough to have him as a, a friend and interested in our story. So uh, I'll give a shout out for Elias. And so when that comes out, um, Shar and I will definitely let everybody know. Um, and he he's doing everything. It's, um, you don't have to purchase a CD or buy the movie because he, he's like me. He believes it all should be out available for free so everybody could see it. Just put it out there and that... Put it uh, out there on YouTube once it's done. So when it's done, um, we'll definitely give that a plug. Yeah, we will, and I look forward to doing it. So Anyway, I wish you a good night, and I wish everybody a good night. God bless everybody, and come back next week. And you take care, Adrian. You too, Sean. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay, God bless you. Take care. Bye-bye. I want to wish everybody good night. And um, it's been a wonderful evening, and it's a beautiful night here in L.A. I can't tell you how gorgeous the evenings have been. And this, the summer days are pretty warm, but it's been beautiful. And I'm very, very grateful for everybody that tuned in, everybody that listened, and uh, who were listening to this during the recording. So you take care, and we'll be with you next time, and next Friday, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And take care, and uh, that's it. Bye-bye.